0: Good morning. I'm proud to say that I'm Terry Cargus. I'm the executive director of the Peterson Automotive here, and I'd like to welcome you to the home that journalism built. Uh, as you probably are aware, Robert E. Peterson built an empire uh, out of uh, a, a humble start with a small book actually in fact we were just talking about this story this morning uh, looking at a month's jet Uh, Bob Peterson uh, was hired as a uh, as a studio uh, media representative and when he quit the studio the very first job that he had was uh, a guy named Madman Muntz who was uh, waving his arms and yelling at the TV selling appliances but he wanted to do a car show so Bob uh, got the job, he got hired, and the first thing that he did, he thought of, what I'll do is I'll put a book together, I'll sell ads in it for car companies and, and uh, builders that want to be in the show, and that was actually the beginning. In fact, Gigi Carlton, his longtime 45-year assistant, uh, still has that book, but that was the origins and the beginning of Hot Rod Magazine, and it led to all kinds of things. In fact, um, one, of the, one of the great legacies he's left us, besides the books that still exist, Um, is this great museum and uh, as you may know October 19th we're going to uh, go dark for about a year till November 1st when we will reopen with a brand new museum inside and out Uh, a brand new exterior and 22 uh, galleries uh, here in the interior telling stories themed floors first floor would be the artistry of the automobile second floor would be the industry and the third floor which has never had cars before will be on on the history of the automobile. So, um, a great new museum, uh, destined to be what we believe, we think we can prove it and we will demonstrate it, one of the top two or three automotive museums in the world. But that's not what we're talking about today. We have a great lineup of journalists here today and and we're very proud to welcome you all and and all of these folks. So, let me turn it over to Dan Kahn, who is the uh, president owner of uh, Kahn Media, the agency of record for the museum here. Dan?
1: Thank you, Terry. Uh, Thank you all for coming. Um, As Terry mentioned, some housekeeping. First, uh, we do have a gala coming up October 18th, and the 19th is the final day for the Old Peterson. So talk to your friends, let them know. They've got about a month left before the museum changes forever. Uh, Also, we made a very kind of subtle announcement at Pebble Beach. Uh, Press release is forthcoming that a significant portion of the collection will be going to the Reagan uh, Library. Uh, during the closure, so that's look for that coming out soon and our, our friends on the panel as well. That's going to be a pretty big deal and we have some announcements coming out about that very soon. Um, another quick piece of housekeeping before we get into it, the Motor Press Guild and I don't know how many people here are an MPG member. Okay, so quite a few. That is sort of the Guild of uh, West Coast or Southern California Automotive Journalists. We have a couple of former presidents of the MPG and officers here. Um, They are looking for a few journalism students to sponsor for the track day, which if any of you have never been to that, it's pretty phenomenal. All the OEMs bring out vehicles to Willow Springs. Uh, You can go out, drive the cars. It's it's pretty cool. Um, There's going to be an MPG track day at the Rose Bowl on October 14th this year. Uh, If you're interested and you're a journalism student and you'd like to attend, uh, you can talk to Joni Gray. Her email is jgray, G-R-A-Y, at motorpressgill.org. Or you can call 714-865-5934. Okay, just to get into it uh, right away, uh, we have a limited amount of time so I'm going to tell you what we're going to do and introduce our our panel. Uh, Museums are supposed to be the epicenter of culture and learning in a society. Uh, This museum, which was once very static, has been reborn in the past few years. Uh, First with content, more exhibits, more educational programming, more special events. Uh, Our first seminar in that vein was on automotive photography and it went really well. This is the second and it's on a subject near and dear to my heart, automotive journalism. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, I started off as a kid in high school living in L.A. Uh, I built a couple cars, uh, worked for my high school paper, idolized not the car magazines, but the people who wrote for them. And I foolishly shot pictures of a car, uh, wrote a story, sent it to the editors of Hot Rod and Car Craft, uh, and asked, how do I do your job? And I was fortunate, and this is when Peterson Publishing was still owned by Mr. Peterson, that two of the editors at Car Craft Magazine wrote me back. And they said, well, come on down for lunch and we'll tell you about it. And so I did. And I had never left the valley before. So driving all the to Wilshire Boulevard in a 1968 Mustang was terrifying. And I did it. And I went to lunch. And, and these two guys, Miles Cook and John Kuicks, sat there and spent an hour telling me about how getting into of journalism would be the stupidest decision I could ever make <laughs> in my career. They said, you're always going to be hungry. You're never going to have any money. You're always going to be overworked. And you're always going to be stressed out. And no one will ever appreciate what you do. And I said, that sounds great. So um, I pursued that career. I did it for about eight years before making the jump to the dark side in PR. Um, but my entire livelihood is based on that one lunch. Uh, so I feel very strongly about trying to kind of help other people who are young, not young, students, have another career already that are considering getting into this, whether for fun or, you know, profit, um, trying to give them as much information and access as possible. So that's the goal today is we're going to start off. We've got... Uh, really a pretty shockingly impressive panel here. We've got kind of the heavy hitters of every genre of automotive journalism on the the stage up here. So I'm going to do an intro. We're going to have a quick lightning round of different questions. Then we're going to open it up to Q&A. There's another event scheduled for the space at 1 o'clock. So as soon as we're done uh, with their questions and taking questions from the audience, uh, several of the journalists actually brought press cars so we can actually move out to the top of the structure outside and look at some of the press cars. Uh, and we're also going to have a quick networking event uh, where you all are welcome to meet and speak to some of the people up here. Uh, so just to jump into it. Uh, also I wanted to thank Tom Moore and Summer Rogers for my staff. They're at the back of the room. They completely put this together. So <laughs> Summer comes from the OC Register where she was on the automotive desk. Tom is a 25-year veteran of the industry writing for a lot of off-road and automotive books before. He got into PR. i fortunate to have them both on team, and they worked really hard on this event. So thank you to both of you. Also if you're on social media, if you're on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, the hashtag for this event is AutoJournal. So if you feel like putting something up, we would love it. Okay. So starting things off, and this isn't in order, but um, Dave Coons, Dave if you want to raise your hand really quickly, Dave Coons is KBC TV uh, Channel 7's automotive specialist. He's been uh, with Eyewitness News since 2001. Uh, where he was offered a temporary part-time job uh, in college as a business major and went on to a formative career in television, KTLA, KBC). Uh, Dave is sort of the go-to guy for automotive journalism on the mainstream news here in Los Angeles. Uh, He's also a fixture at most of the car shows. If you've ever been to a show in this region, you've seen probably his bullet Mustang or his vintage Bronco. David uh, is a real car guy, and he's also a huge supporter of museums, so we're lucky to have him representing uh, TV news. Uh, The other David is David Underkoffler with the LA Times. Uh, Dave has been uh, primarily responsible for viewing new cars and industry stories with the LA Times. Um, he also does car shows, classic car coverage, uh, profiles on business people in the industry, pretty much anything in the motorized world in Southern California has to offer. He's really from New York and Boston, and uh, we're very fortunate to have David here as well. So thank you, David, for being here. Uh, K.J. Jones, Diesel Power Editor-in-Chief. Uh, I've actually known KJ a long time. We've had a couple different gigs that were at the same companies together. Uh, KJ is really a a legitimate legend in the high-performance Mustang community. Um, He is now the editor of Diesel Power magazine, which is one of, really, it's kind of a rarity in the current market where it's a really, really healthy, growing, powerful force in print journalism on the newsstand for enthusiast magazines. Um, He graduated from the University of Pittsburgh with a degree in communications. Uh, KJ has also worked in radio, television, online uh, data. Uh, He worked in Ford and BMW, uh, in service, and also has worked at several large automotive websites. So he's here to talk about some of the automotive niche uh, press. Uh, Jeff Glucker, the CEO and uh, editor of Hooniverse. (laughs) I pulled out your signal (laughs) and whatever. Jeff started on the business side of the automotive industry, but quickly realized that the editorial side is more interesting. He's helped launch the blog at NADA Guides. Uh, He created Hooniverse.com. Uh, He's written for Autoblog, Motor Authority, Car Connection, Autobytel. He's hosted several popular shows and now does video production and hosts a popular podcast under the Hooniverse umbrella. So we're really fortunate to have Jeff here. Uh, Aaron Robinson, executive editor of Car & Driver magazine. Uh, Growing up near Detroit, Aaron uh, claims he belongs to one of the few families in town that had nothing to do with cars, so he's sure he's adopted. Uh, (laughs) Starting off working at Automobile magazine, uh, he then went to Car & Driver. he has a really eclectic taste in collector cars and currently owns a 1970 Lamborghini Espada and I think that's your, what, second or third Espada? Okay. A 48 Buick Special c and a 42 Dodge WC54 U.S. Army Field Ambulance. Uh, so Aaron has been with Car and Driver for 14 years now and is uh, really, really well respected in the new car reviews and has an engineering background as well. So he's here to represent kind of the big three of the, of the print books. Uh, A.J. Gordon with CarStories.com. He's the young buck on the panel. Uh, A.J. oversees daily news stories, interviews, and articles for CarStories.com, which is the Peterson Museum's enthusiast portal. Uh, To those of you who haven't been to it yet, it's only about three months old and it's already attracting 50,000 unique visitors a month, uh, primarily enthusiasts and and, uh, automotive news content. Prior to joining the Peterson Museum, A.J. worked in radio at LA stations including KLOS, Amp Radio, Jack FM, and KROQ. Uh, where he produced interviews for radio stations, websites, and coordinated uh, live streaming. Uh, also on the audio side of things, Matt D'Andrea is uh, the co-host of Adam Carolla's CarCast, as well as the head of Motorator.com. In addition to founding Motorator, Matt currently hosts the top-rated automotive podcast-ish. Ish. Well, in the mix, top three automotive podcasts. <laughs> this week. Depends on the, <laughs> the week. Uh, with Adam Adam Carolla. That'd be cool.
2: No, no, we're higher this week because I was a guest on his show last week. I brought the right down. So,
1: uh, he uh, also recently produced and hosted a popular internet video show, Car Collectors for GQ Magazine, and is the executive producer for an upcoming feature film documentary called "Winning: The Racing Life of Paul Newman." Blake Wrong is the Auto Week is the associate editor of Auto Week magazine. I'm graduating from Syracuse University. Uh, Blake drove across the country to write about cars. The journey he pretends was of Kerouackee proportions and involved a lot of Motel 6s. After a stint at automotive.com, Blake joined Crane Communications as an associate editor and he now writes about uh, cars and the people who build them, race them, and occasionally drives tanks over them. So, Thank you to Blake for being here. Alana Shear is a staff editor at Hot Rod Magazine. She's a California native. Alana's worked as a sculptor's assistant after graduating from UCLA with a fine art degree. Her fabrication experience eventually led to composite work in the motorcycle racing industry and a stint in PR, working for some hack agency. Um, she is, to be rid of me. <laughs> she is currently a staff editor of Hot Rod Magazine and makes occasional video appearances on the Motorfin channel. She owns six cars, none of them newer than 1976. Matt Farah, founder of thesmokingtire.com. Prior to launching The Smoking Tire in 2009, Matt appeared on Garage 419, one of the first YouTube car shows to gain a serious following and audience. He later appeared on Speed TV's The Car Show, and Matt's Smoking Tire podcast and YouTube videos are some of the most popular automotive content on the internet. Matt is currently breaking new ground with pay-per-view automotive content through Drive Plus channel, and co-hosts Drive on NBC Sports, and continues to host his always excellent TST podcast as well. And finally, we have Mark Hoyer, the editor-in-chief of Cycle World Magazine. Uh, Mark has been with the magazine since 1999, he was permanently scarred by seeing a Vincent Black Shadow and Jaguar E-Type early in life, Uh, bought his first internal combustion-powered vehicle when he was 11, and learned to type a 13. In addition to riding a string of fantastic new test bikes of all types, Mark owns four motorcycles, three British cars, and a 1958 English Ford Thames van to haul some of the latest two-wheeled prize home. Uh, some interesting trivia Terry alluded to earlier. Mark actually sold one of the cars to the Peterson Ammo Museum and that's the Jet that Terry was talking about. So uh, very kind of full circle to have Mark here as well. So thank you all for coming. Uh, The first thing I want to do is just sort of throw out some questions at each of you specifically and then we're going to get into some general Q&A. My question for for Dave and for Matt, either Matt really, is how important is it today? I mean in the last 40 years. If you were a print journalist, you were a print journalist. If you were on radio, you were on radio. And it seems like today there's a lot of people crossing boundaries. Um, how important is it to be camera ready and camera trained if you decide to be a blogger or a work for a print magazine? How, how much do you have to cross over now into the different forms of media? And we should have
3: Mike again. Hi, I'm Matt. Um, well, it's an interesting question for me because I started as video and I'm, I'm still primarily video and went to writing afterwards, I'm not a very good writer. Uh, I'll just say that. Uh, I write like I talk, which, which can help people connect to that, but I wouldn't say that I excel in writing. So for me, being camera ready is everything. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of fakery in television, and there's a lot of fakery on the Internet, and I think that the easiest way to connect with an audience is just to Kind of know what you're talking about and be able to 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 relate that in a way that is simple without sounding like you're talking down to someone and um, that they like you. If they like you as a person, they'll kind of believe what you say, for better or worse. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so I guess I don't, does that answer that question? I think I might have gone in a different direction. Yeah,
2: I, I would add to that that there's so many different ways to get content that these these days that. You, doing writing and video and podcasting and radio or whatever, you, know, you sort of have to do that. And if, if not everybody here might do that, but pretty much all of the publications that I think you guys are involved in are kind of heading in that direction, right? Like I know Alana's doing tons of video and writing and, and social media and all kinds of stuff. And I think sort of we all need to be able to do that. That's the only reason why I, I, I sort of lean in that direction. And, and there's also like,
3: as, as, <laughs> as Dan said before, there's not a lot of money in this gig. Um, and so it's important to, as Adam Carolla likes to say, when we started doing TV, I was like, uh, we do the same thing and you're rich. Uh, so what do you do? And he says he, he looks at, at at it as an oil drum with 20 hoses in it all on trickle. So... Since the truth is any one of these things, print, podcast, video, is really only a trickle, you kind of have to do them all if you want to actually make a real living. Resources like press cars and stuff like that are very limited. And so if you get a car to write an article, do a photo shoot, do a video shoot, talk about it on a podcast, you're really maximizing that, that limited resource.
4: Well, it's funny. When I started, uh, in fact, I joined the Motor Press Guild in 2000, and nothing was geared toward video from the major manufacturers. I mean, you're lucky you had to beg to get some video. There was never any sound in it. It was terrible. Everything was geared toward print. Well, now it's gotten so much easier as far as everyone expects video. And as they were saying, it's like video is part of it, but you still have to engage and you still have to tell a story. And if you think about a well-written magazine or newspaper or, or blog article, Video is no different. You're telling a story, and, and, you know, the good articles are a good book or anything. You don't realize how long you've been reading it. That's, that's, a, that's a good piece of video. When you don't realize that you were just standing there staring at a screen for five minutes because it flew by, um, it's just it's down to engaging the, the person who you're, who you're telling this to. It's, I think it's the same thing. It's just it's a different medium. And, of course, everyone, we said, has to do it. But it's still the basics is, you know, telling a good story and getting people to really want, you know, leave them wanting more, I guess, at the end of it.
1: Great, great feedback. Thank you. Um, the next question is really it's it's for for Mark and Aaron and um, you know and Alana. Anyone really? Anyone who wants to chime in? But obviously, there's been a lot of talk, especially inside the industry, in the last few years about print and where print's going. And um, there are obviously big books like some of the Bioneer books and Carn Driver and Road and Track, which were acquired by Hearst. And um, the big books seem like they're still doing well, and you see them on the newsstands. And some of the smaller enthusiast books you don't see as often. And and, and KJ, if you could join in on this question as well, but what, where do you see the future of print, and how is it going to fit in the next ten to twenty years with with the media landscape? You want to start with KJ and kind of work down the row?
5: Well, I, I have to say uh, I'm going to hope that print's still going to be around, and uh, I appreciate you for coming with the hev- the heavy question as number two versus like wait until last, but. Um, uh, we've gone through, as you know, quite a bit as far as transitioning or trying to transition between print into digital with the company I work for, the Enthusiast Network. Um, digital is, is, is not a matter of it's coming on strong. It's here and it just it's like a snowball that's going down a hill and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. However, um, as an quote-unquote old guard person, and um, I, I think there's probably people in this room that can relate, you still like to have that magazine in your hand still like to go through pages, read something, put it down, come back to it. One of the things about the Internet and, and some of the digital stuff is that while it's out there forever, theoretically, the hunt for it sometimes can be very difficult. Yeah, you have your searches, et cetera, but still, it's not a matter of let me go in my living room, pick the book back up, go through something, and, 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 um, and relive it. So uh as far as where it's going I think or, well I know digital and um internet it's it's uh it's going forward but I I in my heart not by way of it's my employment or anything but in my heart I think that magazines and especially the magazines we work with um they still have they still have a lot of life left quite a bit Um I mean you know
6: that's all above my pay grade to think about. I try not to. Um, I just like the writing. And for me, I don't care whether I'm writing for web or for print. It's a little bit different, but the same basic things still apply. I still want to try and get all my facts right, spell people's names right, spell the cars right. Um, And, you know, I think that hopefully, I mean, what they've been telling us about print is that they'll make a, a more beautiful print product, maybe something where before you'd get a magazine, you'd read it, it migrate to the bathroom and it would go in the trash and maybe now it's a bigger thing and it stays on a coffee table. Uh, you know, I'd be fine with that. Um, but, like I said, as long as I'm getting to write about cars, I, I don't really care what medium it's for.
7: Yeah, I'd, I'd echo the, those comments. Uh, I'm a content provider. Uh, if my, con- if, you know, my publisher doesn't have to, you know, uh, cut down three or four acres of Georgia Pines to print 1.3 million of these every month, I'm okay with that as long as people want the content. That's the real question. Do people want to read the stories? Is there a future for long-form journalism, which is what we you know, specialize in? And I think yes, because I think there's a certain segment of our readership uh, of the car, consu- car media-consuming cons- um, uh, market that wants this thing stuck in their mailbox or show up on their e-reader or whatever once a month. And they read this, and they feel that they're done. They got it. We long ago lost the the really narrowly focused guys to the internet. Um, you know, if you're a WRX guy, Subaru WRX guy, you're not going to wait for us to write about it once or twice a year. You've already gone off to a forum, which is basically a reader written magazine. Every day I check my forum, somebody's written something interesting and, you know, I'm sure many of you are on forums, you know there's two or three guys that know what they're talking about and then there's just a lot of chatter. But that's basically a reader written magazine. Well, we've lost those guys because they're not going to wait for us to write about it. They might check it out once we do you know a story. So we're kind of getting the automotive generalists. We're getting the, the men and women who just want the thing stuck in their mailbox. You know, I mean it's, it's, I have the same way about consuming uh, daily media for me. I mean unless the missiles are incoming I don't need to check a website every five minutes to see a story developing. Once a morning, the LA Times lands on my driveway, I read the Times, I'm done. I don't need to check media all day long. I don't care. It's not that important to me. And I think that's who our reader, that's who the monthly car magazine reader is. They want that once a month hit, and they want it to be good. And that's the thing. We have, thankfully, the resources to hire copy editors and hire fact checkers to make sure that content is good. So that's how we're making a fight for the magazine.
8: You know, I feel kind of flattered that I wasn't included in the print magazine group because it, it shows that uh, AutoWeek has really um, just been thought of as a online publication. And you know, I mostly work online, but it's it does give it did give me that thrill when I had a cover story on one of our issues a few months ago. And it's there's a, there's a permanence that comes with print that you don't get with a uh, with the, with like a web page or anything. You know, you can archive it, you can put it in the museum, you can open it up sixty years later and auction it off or sell it or keep it or anything. And um that's kind of the beauty of print as a medium, as an art form, as, you know, versus TV or versus TV or podcasting or internet or anything. They're all different. They all have their unique characteristics. And as long as the brand stays intact, that's the key is, you know, you you can have a magazine that started off in print, like Hot Rod or Car and Driver or Auto Week. And, um, y- you can make the transition, but as long as, you know, you know that Auto Week or Car and Driver still stands for automotive journalism and just, uh, great writing and great photos and everything, you know, you can, you can see it on your iPad app, which we have one. You should check it out.
7: <laughs> Mark?
8: Ice plug.
9: Uh, speaking for Cycle World, from a business perspective, being the editor, um, the biggest hit against the health of a print magazine hasn't been audience. Like our, our subscription and distribution has been quite good. It's really been from a business side, the idea of the, just the fashion Uh, people in motorcycling, because motorcycling is a small market, the branding type of ads were sort of the first thing that died like after 2009 when the market caved. So you had these really rich branding things which is really in line with what we do in print. You want to make a really rich wonderful feature package like it's the it's the ultimate editing of the audience or the information into a really clean wonderful package that here's the most important stuff this month and that's why I think people like to get it but the business side like that's where the that's where people are debating the health of print from an audience perspective it's been very stable for us and it remains healthy and I think a, a smaller circulation enthusiast book you have a really strong connection with your audience versus a general interest book like a fashion book those are pretty healthy but more general interest you have a lot less loyalty and a lot less ardency and I'd rather write for the enthusiast I mean that's been my thing I mean I've been a Motorhead my whole life I subscribed to Road and Track and Cycle World when I was 13 so from a business perspective that's where that is from the working perspective it's what these folks said it's you're really you really want to tell the right story in the right medium and our long form stuff does well like if we do a comparison test and put it online that it's the gift that keeps on giving in terms of traffic it just keeps going 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 but you have to fill the cracks in with you know those people who want to who want to check every five minutes who are on social media you fill the cracks in with like a really fun short story that's that short diversion they're looking at their phone forty like percent of our traffic is now on a phone so if you aren't thinking about how to write a thing or present a thing to put it on a, a mobile device um, at least half the time then uh, you're not doing your job I mean we, it's it's really, and as far as video ready goes and all that other stuff, for everybody on my staff, you've got to, you take a camera to a launch now and you you mount it on the bike, you hold it arm's length if you have to, you give it to the PR guy. Some Motorcycling is so much smaller, we don't get as much video media delivered to us or they don't bring video people to the launches just because the size of the um, market isn't, doesn't support that as, as well. But um, you do it all and you just try and fill every crack you can with good stuff.
1: Great. Thank you. So follow-up print question for David Underkoffler. Same basic question, but the LA Times is one of the last of the major print newspapers that has not just one, but a couple of dedicated automotive desk reporters. I mean, even Detroit News, I think, is down to one, and and New York Times has kind of gone to a more freelance model. And why does the LA Times continue to do that? We're not even kind of the car capital like Detroit, and what's the how does, you know, what's the philosophy that drives your coverage?
10: Well, I think part of it is, you know, we are a, a, there is a strong element of this being kind of the car capital from sort of a cultural standpoint. And, you know, trends that emerge into the the automotive world and, you know, design studios and classic cars and, um, you know, uh, luxury cars, sports cars, this is sort of the target market for autom- automakers, you know, domestic and globally. And so everyone is sort of paying attention to what's going on here which means we need to do the same thing. Um, You're right, I mean, definitely newspapers, I think uh, Washington Post is, um, excuse me, Wall Street Journal and uh, New York Times, yeah, they're sort of shrinking their staffs. Wall Street Journal has, I think, two or three staff guys, but uh, New York Times is switching to more of a freelance. Um, We also, you know, we're covering it also from more of a consumer, sort of not your gearhead car guy. you know, we want to tell a story that maybe you know it's the same material as the other people on this stage are telling to their readers, but we're sort of approaching it from you may never have heard of this car or this racer or this race, so we're going to tell it to you from sort of you know the general audience, not you know hardcore car guy. Um, but the, and so there's a, definitely a, a business. You know, we're in the business section within the LA Times, so there's definitely a business angle. You know, and when I review a car, my editors expect there not only to be my impressions of it, but sort of here's what that segment is doing, here's what, uh, you know, why this segment is growing, here's why the segment is irrele- you know, becoming irrelevant. There's, there's that kind of wonky you know, business angle. Um, so I, I, I think there's a, yeah, a unique audience uh, for us. You know, As the LA Times goes through, you know, we are owned by Tribune Publishing. I don't have any inside information, but it wouldn't surprise me if a few years we had a new owner and someone who was more local and they'll sort of shrink, you know, it's, it's hard for us to keep foreign bureaus open. Um, you know, we, we have sort of consolidated our Washington, D.C. bureau, and we're gonna imagine, I would imagine, in the future, we're gonna, you know, evolve into more of a Southern California, California-centric publication, and that's just gonna keep rel- you know, us relevant from a car side because there will always be that car culture, um, you know, from, from a business and a, you know, cultural standpoint.
1: Great. I'm going to take a step back and ask a, a broader question. So, I mean, there's some legendary automotive journalists in the audience as well. So um, B.J. Kimbrough is here, and I see all here, and there's, there's quite a few people here who have kind of already made their bones. But we also have a lot of students here from local colleges and people who are still kind of thinking about this as a career. So what I'd like to do is ask just everyone to kind of go down the line and and tell us, you know, I have a journalism degree. I think there's several people here who have a journalism or, or an English or a communications degree, but there's also several people on the panel who have an engineering degree. Um, this is a weird job in that if you're a food writer, you don't necessarily have to go to culinary school. Um, if you're a fashion writer, you don't have to go to the Sorbonne and learn how to design dresses. Um, to review cars or anything really complex and mechanical, you have to at least understand the basics of how they work. Um, and I know over the years of my experience, some of the best journalists have had engineering backgrounds, but some are just great storytellers. So. What I'm curious about is, can you tell us kind of what your educational background then is, in, and also the second follow-up question is, uh, how did you get into this, and and what made this all happen for you? I mean, was this a goal that you started out on, or is this something that just kind of happened? So I'll start with Matt, and then kind of work down
3: the line. Um, I have a very bizarre path that probably could never be repeated, but might prove useful for someone That's out bizarre. there. Yeah. yeah. So uh, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do growing up, but I subscribed to Car and Driver, Motor Track, Motor Trend, and, and Road and Track since I was like four, five. I made my dad get me a subscription. Um, I enjoyed reading their impressions. I, you know, I, I would make my mom take me to dealerships and all, you know, all this stuff. I was obsessed, my whole life obsessed. Um, and from an educational background, I was a, into photography. I wanted to be a professional photographer, um, and I never really thought about. Uh, cars as a job, it was always just sort of a hobby, um, but I w- that's all I would ever talk about was cars. And anyone who ever wanted car advice would come to me. It would just happen. And so, uh, the photography thing didn't work out, and I decided I wanted to do cars, but I didn't know what. So I worked at dealerships. I worked at a rental car company. I worked at. Uh, I owned a car wash. Uh, we started a driving club for exotics car owners. And uh, we had this driving club, this sort of in the early days of Google Maps, um, where I would find these routes, and people would pay us to drive with us. We'd have catered lunches and all this. It was pretty hoity-toity, actually, for a 22-year-old kid to be doing this stuff. Um, and uh, one day, I was like, well, let's make some videos of this drives for the members. They would like it, you know. So I hired a kid at a college. He was crazy to hang out on my Corvette at, like, 150 miles an hour with a video camera. He was a psycho. He's my business partner now. Uh, and uh, and we made these videos. And one day he came home with a, with a microphone like this. And he was like, "Here, host the video." And I hosted the video. And a week later, somebody called me and said, "I have an internet TV show about cars. We want to do, and I want you to host it." It was just done like that. And I started doing it first to promote our car club and our detailing shop. And then I realized, holy hell, this is I have to be doing this. This is what's up. Driving other people's cars on video. This is great. And uh, <laughs> and so, I um, when the economy went went south in '09, I sold my car wash, and I used the money that I had uh, to start the Smoking Tire, which is um, which is my still my uh, YouTube channel and website and all that. And so, um, I, I burned through every bit of cash I had in the first two years. I mean, really, I probably blew hundred grand um, getting started, and I made no money at all for the first two and a half years. So. Whether you go to grad school or journalism school or whatever, you're going to pay to figure out how to be a journalist. So um, my advice to anyone who wants to do it is just just go. If someone says to me, Matt, how do I get your job? And I go, well, what have you done so far? And they go, nothing. Well, you're doing it wrong. Um, you, you just start. And you, you start and you don't stop until you're out of money or, or <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you preferably can't someone your, else's money. And you can't, or, or you're out of someone else's money. So, uh, yeah, and then that, that has led to um, to many other things. We're fortunate because we have a, a great audience that that shares our stuff. So, yeah.
8: You're right, man. I don't think anyone can follow. Oh wait.
3: And Blake, who now works for Auto Week, first started by writing for me for free like three years ago.
8: That, that is what you have to do. You have to write for free. For, so I wrote for Matt and I also wrote for Jeff Glucker at Hooniverse. And I was in college uh, majoring in, well, I started off in engineering school. Then I realized I couldn't hack into this old math and science thing. You know, I hear it's a big it would deal have in it. That, right? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Get here. I hate this guy. Anyway, I um, think
6: you're very so confidential.
8: So I switched over to writing because I, I was always writing uh, either about just kinda keeping up like daily blogs and stuff. I had a Zanga. Anyone remember Zanga? Don't dig it up on the internet. Nobody find it. So um I my advisor in college told me uh you should start emailing as many editors as you can. He gave me a whole list of people from car and driver and road and track and automobile and even Top Gear and you know Octane and Evo and Car and stuff like that. And so I started emailing everyone. And the only person that ever who ever got back to me was Jamie Kitman of Automobile Magazine. He lived in Nyack, New York, and on one day I drove Back to Massachusetts, where I was going to school in upstate New York, and I drove back and we stopped by and we had, uh, we went to a Mexican restaurant, and he explained to me basically what we're kind of explaining to you now, like, you know, how you get into this industry and don't do it, don't ever do it. <laughs> so um, I finished college and I had no idea what I was going to do, so I did a year of grad school for creative nonfiction, and um, Jamie emailed me, Hey, there's a job opening up in Los Angeles, you want to, uh, you're hiring an associate editor at a source publication you want to go and I said screw this to grad school and I loaded up my Miata as Dan said and I drove across the country and um, started there and then about two years ago um, AutoWeek found me and um, hired me and uh, I've been at AutoWeek ever since so basically expect to do a lot of writing for free not because well not because you think you'll build up a career it might but because you really love cars and you really love finding weird things on the internet and you can make fun of eBay finds and you make fun of um just terrible cars you see and you can also write genuinely about people you meet and races you attend and um just uh keep trying just keep doing something like Matt said
5: so
9: Mark uh for me it, it really started with uh knowing how to learning how to spell the word necessary and and being able to I touch now. i do yeah this guy spell check if it but uh Touch typing. I, I I studied hard and and really applied myself in college and managed to get out after six and a half years, and I was sort of baffled with what you know I I'd, I'd used college as sort of this place where I mean I anyway I graduated and I got out and I was like well what am I going to do now and. Um, I did various things, and i'd always i have been reading magazines my whole life, and I really enjoyed the form and i'd been writing. I used my mom's uh, manual typewriter, which I still use sometimes, to write letters all the time and I think what these guys said you know generating something all the time it's very easy now that y- you can put it in a public place and and repeatedly just keep doing stuff because if I looked at something that someone was if someone expressed interest in being with PsychoWorld, world i'd say like well what's what have you done? I mean, if you maintain a blog and you do good work on it and I can read it then you have an idea. Um, for me the necessary story was I was in temp agencies and I'd been doing stuff. I could touch type numbers so I got a job at GTE uh, as a temp to type telephone numbers and I, in those little paper cards that they would put inside, um, we were doing it for one of the healthcare companies and I typed thousands of numbers a day and I lost my mind so I Quit that, and I was—I bought an E-type, my first E-type, while I was unemployed. So like, the car passion, there doing that, you know. Like you just you keep after that, and then I—I I signed up at a temp agency at, a, at the recommendation of a friend's girlfriend. I went to Long Beach, which was quite a long way from where I lived, and I killed the typing test because I'd memorized it. I'd gone to so many temp agencies. It was a cold and blustery day in Zagreb, and I could just read that <laughs> and, I sp- and I spelled everything right and they said do you, you know, do you, uh, would you feel comfortable proofreading and I thought well I'm in Southern California so it'll be like maybe it'll be Boeing because they knew I had sort of I'm not technical I sort of did what he did with engineering which is I got through calculus and I said shit no way. <laughs> um, so I got a temp job, they called me and uh, they said well this person was there. And if she doesn't work out, we'll give you a call. That was Thursday, Friday. That person I found out later went to lunch and said, "I'm going I'm to take a walk at lunch," and literally took a walk. So they called me, and I went into. They called me and said, "Hey, um, this is the job. This is how much it pays. Are you interested?" And I said, "Yeah." And I thought cookbooks, whatever. I just yeah, I can I can read, and uh, it was a proofreading job, and. Uh, she said it's Cycle News, which was a weekly, uh, weekly motorcycle newspaper, and I just laughed because I had one on the coffee table, uh, the place I was renting, and um, I showed up on a motorcycle, and that was it for me. I mean, I went in and I didn't really know anything about magazine style uh, or actually how to proofread, and um, but I worked real hard on that, and they didn't really care. They just cared that I walked into the, the motorcycle weekly of record racing coverage, and and I knew who Mick Doohan was and asked how he did and I learned so much more by reading that entire thing every week it was hundred and thirty pages hundred and sixty pages and I read you know basically half of it is editorial and I read that every week every little molecule and it sort of formed the foundation of knowledge there and I loved product so much as that and then I instituted the testing program for product and that was really how I progressed so I looked at what I was doing I did race coverage my passion was product and I made that happen at that magazine and then you know when cycle world had a place open i moved into cycle world which was really product based and it was kind of where i think where you still would want to end up if you're working in
11: motorcycling that's
1: great aj
11: um i sort of fell into it sort of backwards kind of like everyone else did and um a little more strategically planned because uh, i think like everyone on here we all started off as just people who are really into motorsports and cars and motorcycles and maybe I'll ask the question of I like this how do I figure out how to get a paycheck from it and, and like man I, I thought do I want to go sell cars do I want to you know be a detailer do I want to be a mechanic and I don't have a mechanical bone to my body uh, and I'm not a good salesman and I, you know I just for this job for at the museum I was really bored with my last job um, and I kept saying I know digital content. I know how to program a website. I know how to share content. I know how to create articles. How do I do that around cars? And, you know, luckily I saw an opening here at the Peterson and I was able to call them up and say, I'm your guy because you need someone who can do this around cars. I can't work on a car. I can't detail a car. Uh, I like being around them, but I can create stories around them and I I can, uh, you know, share those stories and bring in an audience. And I think that's sort of what it takes to get a job in not just automotive journalism or journalism at all, but any sort of job is just figure out what you're good at and what you know how to do, and then figure out how to apply it to what you want to do. You know, I'm not a writer. I can't write at all. I'm dyslexic. Um, I appreciate journalism. I, in fact, don't, you know, I was never a big reader as a kid. I wasn't. I didn't like fictional reading, but I would read magazines and car magazines just because that's what I like to read. But I'm good at interviewing people. I'm good at doing a podcast, hosting a podcast. So I play to my strengths and I figured out, well, I can take talking to people and interviewing, turn that into a podcast. And, you know, I was able to sort of create a job out of that and and turn into, uh, uh, you know, make an income off of it and be around cars and be around what I like to do. So I you know, figure out what it is you're good at. And and to go back to what Blake was saying, working for free, I mean, internships are where you're going to get your job. You're not going to get it just showing your degree. I have i don't have a degree. I've never been asked if I've had a degree. and But I got in early and often and nothing was too inappropriate or big of a job or beneath me to do. Uh, and I just sort of got FaceTime and in front of people. And before content before websites, I just wanted to be a radio DJ. I just wanted to introduce songs and that was it. And in order to go work at a radio station, I had to figure out how to edit audio and I had to figure out how to upload stuff to a website. So it you know it kind of nicely progressed because to be around cars, I had to upload content to a website and, and create content and manage uh, you know manage a daily news site.
1: I can testify nothing's in a, too inappropriate for AJ. No,
11: no. We, um, we have traded uh, we have traded intern stories.
1: <laughs> uh, not even okay. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, um, give us your background. Sure.
12: Uh, <clears throat> I uh, graduated from the University of Rhode Island <clears throat> with a uh, degree in Management Information Systems. So I'm really good at Excel. That's about it. Um, I moved to California after after college uh, with. Big dreams of being uh, writing screenplays, but I never went to L.A. because I don't really like L.A. that much, sorry, even though we're sitting in L.A. Uh, <clears throat> I, I'm just down in Orange County, and then I got into the, uh, the mortgage industry, actually, right as it started to go south. So I made tons of no money. I made nothing. <laughs> T- yeah, exactly. It was, a, it was a horrible time. Got out of that, got a job actually using my degree somewhat for a company called NADA Guides. Uh, I was on the business side, helping manage all the, the various high level business relationships like uh, auto trader and, and stuff like that. but through it all i 've always really loved cars, just love driving them, looking at them, talking about them i can 't wrench on them to save my life but, um, but you just th- there 's the love of cars that 's been present since I was a little kid through and it continues today so at the at NADA guides. I was talking to someone who manages one of the um, the fleet companies that deliver all the press vehicles and he said we're a large enough website that we can we can start getting these and review them so i brought it up to the, the the guys who own the company and they said sure let's start a blog you like the cars learn how to take pictures drive them you write about them so i just started doing it um i used to use the camera on auto mode in these really horrible locations i didn't know anything about um, composing a shot or, or any of that stuff. So I just had to teach myself how to use a camera, uh, teach myself how to convey my thoughts about the cars to the readership, um, and I kind of outgrew my position at NADA, NADA guys because they, they just didn't want to keep the blog going and I didn't want to stop doing that because the editorial side is way more fun than the business side of the, the industry. So I said, alright, I'm starting my own website and that's how I launched Hooniverse. Um, and then since then, I've, because I've, that doesn't make me tons of, that makes me tons of no money as well. Um, so you have to freelance to, yeah, exactly. You have to freelance to supplement your love of what you're doing. So you, you start forming relationships um, with these other websites and the the editors behind them, uh, providing the same type of content geared towards their respective audiences. And uh, as you do that, you learn how to refine your writing, how to um, get better shots with your, with your camera, and you go from there, well also, I'm still trying to grow my own website. So it's, it's, a, it's a balance of my time and, and how I can learn new skills. But through it all, I'm also having to evolve with what, uh, what type of content basically the internet wants. And video is on the rise, it's been on the rise for a long time, it's, but everybody's trying to get into video, so I'm also having to teach myself how to do that now. I to learn how to edit video, how to shoot video, how to use the audio equipment, so it's a whole new set of skills that I'm trying to add to what I'm doing and um, just kind of growing and going with the flow of the industry from there. So it's been a fun ride, but the, the, the key, the core of it all is that through it all, I just love cars. I love driving them. I drove here in a Hyundai Elantra GT, which you, like, wow, that's, that's not nice. that exciting. It's awesome. It's, it's a new car. It's not mine. It has different features. Matt and I were talking about how they revised the suspension uh, to make it a little bit more fun to drive. But it's still an Elantra. And the day before that, I had a Viper, But I still can say good things about the Elantra. So it, as long as you love cars and just start putting out content, even if it's on your own WordPress blog, just start doing that. And the more content you have, the more visible you can make yourself to um, the higher level websites and magazines out there and maybe you can start to climb the ladder.
7: Well way back in the mists of time before there was an internet, um, I was about 15 when I figured out that owing to a couple of factors including the fact that my father had forgotten to become the second richest man of Brazil, I was not going to be a Formula 1 driver. So um, I thought the next best thing would be to uh, be the guys that I uh, idolized besides the drivers which was the guys that covered the races in Road and Track, which was then my favorite magazine. And um, so that's kind of when I entered college with really no plans, that was sort of the vague ember of a plan that I was following. And um, I was a reading and writing um, major, basically I was a history major at Michigan because uh, that's what an undergraduate history history degree is, is reading and writing. And um, anybody who knows me knows that engineering was definitely not a possibility. And uh, while I was in college, I was in a car club, and uh, one of the guys in the car club was a gopher for Automobile Magazine, and he was graduating onto bigger and better things. Actually, he's now a multi-franchise dealer in Ohio and probably, you know, a tens of millionaire. Anyway, he said, you want this job at Automobile because I'm leaving, and I said, sure. So I went for the first time into the uh, hallowed halls of a real car magazine, and I said, these people have nice offices, and they get new cars to drive every day, and They get to go all over the world, you know, driving cars, new cars. That's what I want to do. Forget the racing thing. It's a terrible job. So uh, apologies to anybody who actually does it. So uh, (laughs) it doesn't pay well. It's terrible hours. You're traveling all the time. Anyway, uh, so when I got out of college, uh, I made it my mission to go to work for a car magazine. Um, The problem was it was 1990. The economy was terrible and nobody was hiring. And so I had to do it the long way. It took me 10 years. I was a journalist, and I, I went to Washington. I worked for a wire service. I had a, a press passes to the Capitol Hill and the White House, which for five minutes made me debate my career decision. But I ended up getting a job with the NADA monthly magazine for car dealers. And then from that, went to Automotive News, which is a weekly publication for the car industry. And um, I got to know a lot of people at car magazines. and. Um, uh, one of my friends was killed testing a car for car and driver and um, about three months later my kind of mentor in the business Don Sherman said okay it's time contact Chuba. send him your resume and uh, I sent Chaba a resume and he hired me shockingly um, because he hired me for a job testing and they, I was the first non-engineer to have that job in the history of the magazine. and. Um, uh, when I moved into Don's office, I had the Don Schrader, the fellow who was killed, I had to clean out his office because nobody at the magazine could bring themselves to come clean out the desk. And um, that was my start 14 years ago at Car & Driver. A lot of people come up to me and say, I love cars. How do I get that job? And I say, well, the problem is is that car love is only one of the things, and I'm going to use my propaganda. Well, car love is only one of the things we sell. If you'll notice, this is paper with pictures and write. Thank you, uh, paper with photographs and writing. Um, so, if you want to work for a car magazine, you either got to be able to know how to print a magazine, or you got to be able to know how to take pictures, or you got to know how to write, um, write about cars. The car love is just one part of it. We can find all kinds of people who love cars. The challenge is finding people who can convey that love in print or in photographs, and, and that's where we run into difficulty, and you'd be shocked at how difficult it is to find people who can do this job the way we want to do it If it was easy everybody would do it and none of us would be here because we'd all be out you know shoveling garbage it's, uh, it's not easy and um, and that's what we really struggle when when we have a vacancy which granted is not that often it's very difficult for us to find good candidates and we tend to look horizontally at the other magazines and I, I've always thought we should look either outside uh, the car magazine business or find some young people whether they're wrenching on cars in a dealership, something, but they have to bring me something that shows that shows us that they can do something besides love cars, because that's just one uh, aspect of the job. And so, as people have said, you know, previously, you have to generate some kind of content. Now, nowadays, it's easy. You need a laptop and a connection to the internet. When I started, it wasn't so easy to generate clips but uh, nowadays it is and you have to bring me something that shows me that you have a spark that you um, as P- Patrick Bedard said when I was first hired a car and driver that you your fingertips smile and uh, that's, uh, that's the hardest thing to find. Uh,
6: so I ended up studying art at UCLA um, and graduated with a degree in uh, photography and sculpture um, and I didn't drive until I was 21. I didn't know how to drive, um, and so I was already out of my parents' house. I had nothing to learn on, so I bought a car. I bought a '73 Plymouth Duster, and uh, I used to have to have my roommate move it from side to side on the street because I, I didn't have a license yet, and we had street cleaning. I lived in Hollywood. Uh, one day the starter went out. We had to pull it, push it up on the on the curb, and I changed the starter before I could legally drive it. Um, <laughs> And luckily, I had some friends to help me with this, but I really enjoyed it. And once I did get my license and get comfortable driving, I, it was def- it was just one of those, where have you been all my life moments. Like, I should have been doing this my entire life. I, I love you. So um, so then I decided, well, I've got to learn more about this. So I started reading car magazines, and I would read my neighbor's car craft, mostly. And uh, I didn't understand anything except maybe the adjectives. I'm like, oh, something's blue. Um, but you read it enough, and... You know a year later I could read through the whole thing and be like "I know I know all of this stuff I would go to car shows I'd talk to people I'd just stand there and be quiet while smarter people were talking and uh, it starts to sink in so I was like, I want to do this I want to write for a car magazine so I applied to Carcraft and uh, they just ignored me so I did some other stuff i I worked making carbon fiber for racing motorcycles uh, sculpture background helped with that uh, I worked one summer at a restoration place just taking things apart um, and uh and then I started doing um automotive PR. Oh somewhere in there I, I applied to Carcraft again. This time they uh they did reply, but they turned me down. So um <laughs> so then I, I started doing PR. Um I, I actually worked for Dan and it was really interesting, very challenging. Um but the part that I really liked was when I would get to write stories. And um and you know, there's a lot of PR that isn't that. So uh I got to meet people in the magazine industry and I heard through the grapevine that Hot Rod was hiring and I was like, oh, no, no, there's no way. And they ended up hiring somebody else and, you know, it was fine. And then about a year later, I heard that they were hiring again and uh, a friend of mine said, look, if you don't apply for this job, I don't want to hear you complain that you don't have this job. Like, you're not going to get it. They're not going to offer it to you. So... um, so I wrote to the editor, who, who I knew, David Freiberger, and I was like, would it, would it be weird if I applied for this job? <laughs> he was like, no, that'd be great. Send me some clips. And I had clips because I'd written stuff um, both while I was doing marketing and also um, on my own. I had I'd written car stuff, but I'd also had another blog that had nothing to do with car stuff, but it was writing. So I had a lot of clips, and I sent them in, and, uh, and they hired me, and I couldn't believe it, and it's been fantastic ever since. But... Um, I mean, everybody's already given you most of the advice I would give you, but the only thing that that I haven't heard anybody say yet is, if you want to write, then read. It doesn't matter what you're reading. It doesn't have to be car stuff. Just read and pay attention to it. What kind of opening line makes you want to keep reading? Um, You know, what kind of line makes you stop reading? If you hate something, don't do it when you start writing. Um, If you think something's a cliche, don't do it when you start writing. And the same with with the video stuff or the photography. If there's, some, you know, if there's a show that you really like, sit there for a second and, and say, why do I like this? Is it because of the interaction between these two people? Is it because this guy seems to really respect the people that he's talking to? Is it because he seems to really disrespect the people that he's talking to? It doesn't matter what it is, but, but figure out what makes you like something and how to do that. Uh, figure out what makes you hate something and then don't do that. Um, and I think that those, you know, if you're not consuming you're not gonna be able to create well. I, if you asked me right now to give you all the rules of grammar, I couldn't do it. But if you gave me a piece uh, to copy edit, I could do it perfectly because I know what write feels like. Um, and that's only because I read so much.
2: Well, I, um, everybody's talking about writing and uh, these two guys here, I'm such a big fans of everybody up here, but I don't know how to run a magazine. I don't know how to take photos. I don't know how to write. In fact, <laughs> I could barely read. <laughs> you know, but um, my, my path, in, in some ways, is similar to Matt Farah in that I actually never really set out to get a job in the automotive space, but I always set out to create a job for myself in the automotive space. And I, when I was 19, I started an internet company, and a bunch of my clients were in the automotive space. And when I got out of that business, I knew I wanted to get into automotive but I didn't know what I wanted to do. Now, I tend to lean more into the aftermarket side of things, the performance aftermarket. So I knew, for example, the SEMA show was sort of the mecca of aftermarket. So I just found a way to get to the SEMA show and I went up to everybody I can possibly meet and just said, hi, my name is Matt. You don't know me, but you will. And you're gonna see me again and again and again and again and again. Um, I would say that my, my biggest advice would be you're going to learn how to write. You're going to learn how to photograph. You're going to learn how to do videos. Maybe you're going to learn how to be great on camera. But most of all, you need to learn how to sell yourself. Because this industry, especially right now, is a lot of freelance work. 80% of what you're going to do is selling your ability to do that work. And 20% of it's doing the work. <laughs> and if you're good at it, then you're easier to sell. But you've got to just keep hammering and, and going to the next deal and the next deal and the next deal. I'm currently involved with I think I'm a partner in five different companies right now. Only f- four of them are automotive. Only one of them really makes money, and it's not the automotive one. <laughs> okay. But but the other four are really fun. Yeah, right. Oh, uh, I, I brought a wine business for Adam Corolla. <laughs> yeah, I sell booze. I sell booze. I, I kind of feel like this is my audience right here. Is is we sell very high octane alcohol, and that's yeah. And and that's where most of the money is. But the automotive side is where the fun is and where my passion is. But everything I do in the automotive side is is basically freelance. You just have to continue to sell yourself. That's pretty much the only advice I can give. Great advice, David. Um,
10: sort of going off what Jeff said. If you want to make tons of no money, come work for a bankrupt newspaper. Uh, <laughs> we're we're doing all right now. But there's never been money in it for uh, for. Uh, at the LA Times. Um, I'm sort of the, the writing journalism nerd. Um, always knew I wanted to write from a little kid. I've always, like Alana said, I was always reading. I was always writing sort of whatever. Um, always been into cars. My dad's a car guy. Grandfather's a car guy. Um, some racing history in the, in the family. And never really thought cars were something I was going to make a living on. That was just sort of going to be secondary. Writing, I kind of always knew that's where I was going to end up. Um, and it's really sort of the, the same kind of thing. It was sort of happy accidents, sort of one after another, not car accidents, life. Um, went to uh, undergrad for jur- what, communications in English and then uh, grad school for journalism. Um, this was in Boston. Had had enough of Boston and New York winters. Moved out here, the same kind of thing, no job, no money, everything in a car, road trip out to California. Um, got a job at a news site, uh, a, a then-fledgling little <laughs> blog and this has nothing to do with my political leanings, but it was uh, the Huffington Post right when it was getting off the ground. Um, I was there for a year and that sort of uh, you know, springboarded into becoming an editor, an online editor at the LA Times. Um, and I was sitting next to a woman we all know, Joni Gray, who used to work at the Times. Um, and this is when Dan Neal was still uh, like the main car writer for the LA Times. I'm sure all of you know of him, he's won a Pulitzer, I know. <laughs> big shoes to fill and so he was, he was still there and, and Joni and I would talk about cars and, and you know, sort of what Matt said too. Just, she was like, do you want to just write some car stuff on the side? We can't pay you. If we, you know, we can send you to some automotive events. We can sell, send you to the LA Auto Show. Just go and just like, obviously you like cars and you like writing. Just go, see what you find, write about it. And so I started doing that for three or four years. Um, again, on the side not paid. There's no sort of compensation. Just sort of, it was just a, an awesome place to be. When Dan left to go to the Wall Street Journal, it was sort of right place, right time. And I think the editors were just too lazy to hire somebody outside the building. (laughs) They said, you just want to keep doing this and in more of an official capacity. Um, Still wasn't paid for it. They sort of backed off my hours on the homepage and editing online and just sort of had me do more car reviews. And we did that for a few years. Uh, It went really well. And then almost three years ago, we sort of made it official and uh, brought back a section in the LA Times called Highway 1, which we had sort of killed off uh, a number of years ago, um, so that 's sort of where it was. It was you know again just I, I, if I were to i 'm not going to say anything original I, I would just a read everything um, again if you if there 's a writer that you like, figure out why you like them what what they are doing, but also when you do figure out what why you like them don 't then try to duplicate what they 're doing in your writing. Um, there are some fantastic writers that i 've always liked. It's gonna sound sort of disingenuous if you try to copy their style. Just sort of figure out what kind of you know, works for them. Um, and then try to do it in your own way, your own voice. We all have our own voices. I think the more you write, you'll kind of figure that out. Um, and yeah, just read everything and, and again, just write and, and be prepared to do it for free for a while. And I think you know your passion for cars will absolutely come through and you know, serve you well as, as you go forward.
4: I think, well, we all have the common thing of we all kind of grew up in an environment of at least liking cars or admiring cars or wanted to be around them. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and uh, back at the time, and even still today, it was just the car place to be. I mean, every older kid in my neighborhood I idolized. If a guy had a ratty 70s Chevelle with the muffler hanging off, I'd be over there asking if I could help him fix it or wash it or do whatever else. And going through high school, I didn't really have a career plan. The LA Unified School District was my... uh, Education for primary grade, thank you. Um, and what I like to do in, in high school is I like to write about things, um, and I was crushed when a high school English teacher, we had one of those, you can write about anything you want, like do a four-page essay or whatever else, and kind of like Ralphie in A Christmas Story, writing about the Red Ryder BB gun, I wrote the story on the history of the Ford Mustang, and I was crushed when the teacher accused me of not writing it myself. I was just heartbroken because, you know, I put a lot of thought into this. and. Um, So I got out of high school and and I also like to do video. We had a a little video TV station and I'd shoot the football games and plays and things like that and I I loved hanging out with cars. Well you know there's an old thing like well it's not what you know it's who you know in the business so don't even try to get into the broadcasting business or don't try to get into the movie industry, you'll never make it, you'll never do that. So kind of dejected from not really being able to do something that would be fun I uh, started going to Pierce College as a major of nothing kind of business And a family friend had gotten a job as a producer at Channel 7 and called me up uh, in June and said, hey, uh, do you need a part-time job? I need a reliable gopher. Uh, You'll literally be the lowest person on the totem pole here. Uh, You'll get coffee. You'll take scripts to the anchors. You'll pick up videotapes. You'll do all this kind of stuff. Well, sure, I'm working at a liquor store now delivering kegs to drunks at frat parties at CSUN, so... Give it a whirl, yeah. And and, and, you know, I, and I don't know how many students we have here who are doing internships or going to do an internship. If you get your foot in the door of anywhere, pay attention to the people who, who are really good at it. And they will take you under their wing and stay late, come in on weekends, whatever you have to do to learn. So I learned to shoot, to edit, to produce, to write, um, and and found a career working in broadcasting, kind of you know with cars as a hobby. In the mid-1990s, uh, ABC and all the ABC-owned stations were purchased by the Walt Disney Company, and suddenly... This was kind of in the salad days before kind of everything went downhill as far as financially, but they were really building up our news staff in the late 1990s, and we wanted to be covering every topic. And I thought, well, why aren't we doing cars? Because this is Southern California. This is where cars are. This is where car people are. So I went with a proposal. I said, hey, I'd like to start producing some car stories, and then one of the news anchors could could voice track it and appear, and they said, well, we can't really have you doing that, but make a tape of you doing it and... We'll, we'll give it a look and we'll show it to the general manager. So I went out on a Saturday and shot a couple stories and brought them in and they said, wow, hey, you know, this could be part of our newscast. And that's how it happened. And, and so they finally figured out that it used to be like, well, we're doing them a favor, letting them do this too hey, did you hear about the new whatever or, you know, hey, I've got this story on the new Tesla convertible and, and, and the producers are like, I want it in my show, I want it in my show, because they know that they can use that as a hook. It's, I'm what they call a feature at the end of the show, so it's the kicker. So it's the stay tuned, stay tuned, stay tuned. Sorry, there was a car chase. <laughs> we didn't show that to you. Um, that happened yesterday when a guy tried to rob the fries in uh, Anaheim. Um, so my story got bumped. But, but I, it happens. Um, I, I'm always, I always have to send, when I send a note to a PR person, hey, the story on the bubble is going to be on uh... you know brush fire earthquake a kardashian getting arrested uh... you know all be put back on the on the shelf and you know these stories are what we call evergreen so they can air any time but but now when i when i see uh, interns and you can almost tell right off the bat with the interns who come in the ones that are just there i need my intern credit okay great or, hey uh... can i help you what can i do how did you do this the ones that are asking and, and if you get an internship or you get a foot in the door or you get an opportunity like we've all talked about do something with it. Learn from people. Learn how to do things. Learn how to write. Uh, everyone's been stressing, you know, write, uh, if, you, if you're into in broadcasting, you know, watch 60 Minutes. Watch 2020. That's the best television and that's really reality show news type writing. That's the stuff that'll really, it, it compels you to want to watch it. So, so learn how to write. Ask people who are good writers who have won Emmys, who've done things. Well, what does it take to get people, you want to get people to pay attention in the first 15 seconds of your story. If you start going, uh, blah, 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 the new Hellcat has 707 horsepower, and it has a six-speed manual transmission, and it has 19-inch brakes. Pr- I mean, you can't just start prattling off facts. You have to kind of hook people in. Same, same with a, any kind of a story, but find out how the people who really do it do it well as people have been talking, and, and learn from that, and, and keep learning. I, I love to read. I love to find out things. I like to know what's going on, and, and I try and... Always trying to be striving to do it better. Because remember, there's always going to be someone else trying to get your job. So always be working to do it a little better and better. And uh, once you get the start, just uh, do with it the way you can.
5: Whenever I think about that question, you know, how did you get into this? Because people, uh, they they ask me a, a lot. And uh, it's I'll give you the short form of a, of a pretty long story and a pretty convoluted story. Um, when I think about it, it's just like a miracle that I'm, I've been able to do what I've been doing for the uh, for the last 10 years, and that's being in the automotive space as a as a writer, as a journalist. Um, started life as a car guy. Um, the embarrassment story that my mom tells is that I used to sleep with my Hot Wheels, and and like literally sleep with Hot Wheels with a death grip and wouldn't let them let wouldn't let them go, all night that whole thing. But uh, writing. Um, In my senior year of high school, we had a torturous two-hour, every Monday, writing workshop, if you will, where uh, a a Shakespearean passage or just something that I had zero interest in was presented to us and we had to write about it. And you couldn't give back a paragraph. You were given a paragraph to create three pages or so. And I would just fail, horrible at them, because I just was not interested in it. However, the, um, the teacher was gracious enough to, every once in a while, give us open comp, open composition. If I wrote about cars, I got A's. It, it just, it was amazing. So, the love for cars, paying attention enough in that class to learn how to be able to write, that's where it started to manifest itself. Um, what I wanted to do, though, as far as career, I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to be an automotive engineer, specifically design engines. I... Um, took shopping in school, um, you know, hot-rodded my mom's car, the whole whole thing, and and started to build cars and buy cars. And uh, I wanted to build engines. That's really what I wanted to do. But like some of our our panelists, the math was horrible. You know, it's like, why do I need math? My hands are brilliant. Let's go. And um, people at various universities weren't accepting me as an engineer. And um, I wanted to go to a school called Denver Automotive and Diesel College, and my dad deemed that a glorified garage and there's no fucking way you're going. So, <laughs> so, okay. So with, uh, with very, very, very few options left and the rest of my class getting accepted at various schools, et cetera, um, took a trip to the University of Pittsburgh. And I'm very thankful. I don't know the gentleman's name, but the, the uh, admissions person that I sat with pulled it out. He's, he's the one that, that shined the light. He said, look, the reason why you're not getting into these engineering schools is because your math sucks. Bottom line. It's like, oh, okay. All right, cool. And what we can do here at the University of, Pit- University of Pittsburgh is accept you in general studies and then build your math up You can go on and be the greatest engineer in the world. I said, that's too much fucking school. Way, <laughs> way, too, much, way too much school for me. So I accepted radio as my path. I um, what do I like? What can I do? Communication sounds pretty cool. Tony Dorsett took communications classes. I like Tony Dorsett. We'll do communications. And uh, got into radio at the, at the, um, the uh, student-run radio station and found internships and interned at professional radio stations. And my, my goal was to be a radio programmer, not necessarily be an on-air person, but just run the station, program the station, design the music, design the playlist, and stuff like that. and. Uh, things worked out pretty well. Through internships and getting the experience, I finished out my career at WPTS. It's uh, our student FM station, and I was the first station manager of the FM station. So with that, it's like, alright, the, uh, the way this plays out is you're supposed to now work in a very small market station, get your pro experience, and at that time, the uh, the big chip was to, to go to New York. You wanted to get into New York radio. Um, I'm from New York, but I was ready to accept the small North Carolina station or wherever have you, but they sending my tape out like crazy and not getting any kind of jobs, no jobs at all. And uh, almost another last ditch, um, student advisor at Pitt said that CBS News is, has an intern program for graduated seniors and juniors, and I'm a graduated senior, so went to that intern pro- program in New York, did very well, and at the end of the summer, uh, I explained, look, I don't have school to go back to. I, I could use a job and was fortunate enough to land a job as a desk assistant on a radio desk at CBS News. Now, a desk assistant, for those who don't know, that's an advanced intern. <laughs> you're, 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 not, you're not an intern, but you're doing quite a bit. You're on the phones, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a grunt position that's entry level in that business. Progressed through CBS, um, uh, bottom line, several years later, I left CBS as a producer. So... That kind of thing can happen, and, and it's by way of working hard, meeting people. For the young people that are that are um, aspiring to do anything in this, or, or any career, meet people. Don't be so inhibited that you can't approach someone and say, who are you? What do you do? I've done that, and it's, and it's helped me quite a bit. But getting back on track automotive-wise, I'm always a, a car person, and... Um, at CBS, that job ended up making me too old too soon, at 22 years old, literally like burning out on 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 hard news, just stuff that's happening in the world. The hours, um, life goes away. You know, it's Saturday night, and everybody else that you know is at a club or partying or doing whatever, and you have to work an overnight shift or something like that. And the, and the overnight shift keeps coming your way. It's like this is terrible. I've got to do something else. Um, in leaving CBS the Internet in the crude form was just coming about by way of a service uh, American Online, of course, CompuServe and Prodigy were the big three online services. I left CBS to go to Prodigy and that was a challenge in that people didn't know what the Internet was. Like, you know, you guys are all pretty lucky because you know the Internet for what it is today. It was a very, very crude, slow thing. You had 24 or 1200 baud modems that sending a message on a bulletin board, not a forum or a blog, but sending a message took a day to cycle to that next person's uh, mailbox and stuff. But at Prodigy, I landed a job there in the newsroom. So I'm still a news guy, and I don't want to be. But um, I'm writing news for Prodigy. And uh, realized the news stuff is not what I want to do. I thought that getting into it by way of CBS would end me and finish um, help me end up on the FM side doing music radio. Um, I worked through Prodigy up to uh, another producer type of job in the new business ventures department. And, uh, KJ,
1: can we fast forward to Edmunds? Can you talk a little bit about it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: Definitely. Thank you. Because <laughs> it's a long story. Um, anyway, the fast forward to Edmonds goes this way. In 1997, or 1996, I was, I was kind of through with a lot of things. Um, Prodigy and, and just a lot of things. And I, in 94, I met my wife, Crystal, and I was also at this point, a Mustang guy, um, and wanted to be someone in this this arena. So I packed everything up and moved from New York to Los Angeles. And the the, the mission was to get a job in cars. At this point, um, started some for experience because I had none in the automotive arena. I worked at dealerships. I started at Galpin and worked. Uh, went from Galpin to, in the service department, and went from Galpin to um, Century US BMW, and uh, realized that dealership service wasn't for me and I I have a communications degree. There's some way I can can do something else in automotive and go back to the internet. That's when Edmunds.com was starting to ramp up. So in the entry level or the beginning of Edmunds.com, I helped build their Ford database. I was like the Ford data guy for several years at Edmunds. And um, I have to spin back a little bit. The gentleman who's in the crowd with us right now uh, Evan Smith is one of my friends from the New York, New Jersey area. We raced Mustangs, and we were part of the Mustang hobby together. Um, Evan presented me with an opportunity to write a story for Muscle Mustangs and Fast Forward's magazine. I would read the magazine, was a friend of the magazine, but had no idea how to do an article. But, you know, take some pictures. Just do what you read. Right. So uh, we went out and bought a camera. And I went and shot some photos and did a little tech piece on an exhaust install and ended up getting a check and published. And I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. you know. And um, it flourished, my career flourished as a freelancer while I was at Edmonds. And then when I left Edmonds, and this is, again, get yourself out there. Uh, when I left Edmonds, the networking I had done and the people I had met, I had a bunch of email addresses, and I basically sent an email blast to everyone I knew that said, you know, I'm not working, and if there are freelance opportunities in this car game, let me know. And from there, uh, Steve Turner, who was my editor at 50 on Mustang and Superforce, contacted me and said, I'm looking for a tech editor, and I've read what you've done, and I think this would be pretty good. And 10 years later, this is it.
1: Excellent. You received the Robert E. Peterson Award for Motorsports Media w- this year, right? M- yeah,
5: M- yeah, that's some, yeah. That's
1: excellent. <laughs> um, well, that was all great and I appreciate everyone kind of getting into some detail and I think if there's a takeaway here, it sounds like the takeaways are consume the kind of content you want to create. So if it's TV, watch TV. If it's web, just read every study site, every site you can. If it's any kind of writing, web, print, anything, just read, 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 and then really just put yourself out there. And I mean, I, some of these stories, they're all, they all kind of sound similar in that it's just people who had the you know, the guts to just start doing things for free and and know and trust that eventually it'll kind of come full circle and you'll get those opportunities if you just stick with it. Um, we, we, we're a little time time, so I have a couple more questions that are a little more inside baseball that I want to ask, and then we're going to open it up to uh, questions from the audience. Um, we're in a free market economy. Uh, obviously, everything in our economy is sort of based on supply and demand. I think something that Aaron touched on, but it's an interesting point is I've, throughout my career, I'm sure everyone here has had the same experience. You meet a lot of people who say, I want to do this for a living. I want to be an automotive journalist. I want to be the next Chris Harris. I want to be the next you know, automotive photographer, whatever it is. Um, a lot of people say they want to do it. There's a very limited number of jobs. And I would say in the, all, the entirety of all of automotive journalism, TV, you know, web, digital, everything, there's maybe less than 1,000 jobs of, for actual content creators. You know, there's a lot of salespeople and graphic design and stuff, but for actual you know, writers, producers, there's maybe a thousand jobs and there's probably hundreds of thousands of jobs people that want those jobs so it, it's, it's a tough deal because there's, there's a large supply of people that want to do it and there's a very small demand for it um, what's interesting over the last really two or three years is in the past if there was a you know if, you know any kind of content had a similar model whether it was a magazine or it was a TV show's top year or it was even something on the web it was sort of you put the content out, content out there and you either charge for the magazine or you charge for advertising or both. Um, what's changed with podcasting, and we have several prominent podcasters here, what's changed with YouTube is now there's, there's this premium paid content where you go buy a car and driver, but there's also free content where you can go on caranddriver.com and you can read the stories. And then there's a freemium model where some people kind of get hooked into a, you know, an experience where they listen to a podcast and they want to pay to get more. Um, so something I'd like to talk about is kind of that changing landscape and, and not only how does it work but also how, how do you get paid? And as someone in the new media, if you say, hey, I'm just a kid and I've got this blog and, you know, I'm, and like we have a, a, you know, there's a kid that we work with in my agency who's got a, an Instagram account with 350,000 followers who just post car pictures every day. He doesn't get paid. He just does it because he likes to do it. How does he get a job? Does he go get a job at a traditional media company? Does he find a way to monetize that?
9: Is he taking
1: those pictures? Yeah, yeah, no, that's the other thing. Oh, is, wow. And that's part of the question is he's not. About 80% of those pictures, he's stealing essentially off Google. So how does that all work? How do you protect your content and how does the freemium model work? And, and I'll, I'll, I'll hand it to Matt first because you're doing something sort of interesting with Drive Plus. If you can explain what you're doing and then maybe we can just kind of see who wants to talk about okay. it. Okay.
3: I'll, I'll, I'll back up as to first why we started this really quick and I, I, I won't ramble on, I promise. So, so in the past, YouTube has worked a certain way. You have a partnership agreement with YouTube, your channel, okay? And they pay you on a what is called a CPM model, dollars per 1,000 views, okay? So it, uh, the average is around three to five really good content, gets eight or nine, and that's dollars per 1,000 views. So quick math, if you get a million views a month, nine grand, okay? Now that's, that's gross. YouTube takes 45% off the top immediately, immediately just For the privilege. So, anyone who says uploading a video to YouTube is free is lying or stupid. So, um, in 2008, 2009, YouTube was really, it was this. It was, this is where it's going, the ad dollars are there, they're coming in, they're gonna be, it's gonna be the new TV in, in five years. Another five years have, oh no, it's, it's five more years, five more years. And then, what's happened in the last two years, is, or two to three years, is two things one, ad block software. 30% of all viewers use Adblock software, so you get zero from them. The other is a shift to mobile, as we were learning. Many people are reading magazine articles on their phone. Same with videos. Mobile ad revenue pays 20% what desktop views pay. So when you talk about a 60% shift to mobile at 20% of the revenue, 30% of people are using Adblock, and YouTube takes 45% out off the top, well let 's say we started with one hundred dollars what you 're left with is about twenty two dollars and now you have to go make the content so if you 're a video game channel and all you need is an xbox a twitch stream and and, and a and a, a game to play and you can literally do it from your couch well that 's great because your 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 investment is five hundred bucks and then you 're just making videos forever we have my my company is very small there's there 's four of us we have about worth of camera equipment, which sounds like a lot, but in L.A. it's really nothing. Um, But we have travel, fuel, food, um, um, uh, maintenance of our gear, our office, our Internet connections. Um, A standard YouTube revenue model will not support that, period. And there is no proven ad model that will support that, period, unless you take what I would consider to be a big sellout deal from an OEM. Okay and you if you review cars for a living well sorry Aaron you can't take money from manufacturers you and and they're the I'm only still ones still waiting
7: gonna, for my check what money Yeah,
3: Well you're people who wear suits at your company you have those checks Um so um on on another channel that I worked for called Drive um the the game was over that was it the, the money could not the the incoming money could not support that those videos so it was either and, was, and there was 1.4 million subscribers on this YouTube channel. You go, oh, my God, a YouTube channel with 1.4 million subscribers? That's so much money. How could that not support it? It doesn't. It's not even close. And because of the math I just did for you, which, by the way, me telling you that math is in violation of my YouTube content, co- contract. So I can actually get kicked off of YouTube if, I, if, I, if that math is in, of record somewhere. No, no, no. I, I don't care. I don't let them kick me off. I don't care. I, if, they, if if it, if if it, if I can, if I'll martyr for that cause, fine. If they kick me off, so be it. Um, so anyway, with this channel called Drive, even with 1.4 million subscribers and all the revenue that brings, it's still not enough. So we've had to do what they call the freemium model, which is now, rather than making 15 minute videos, we have a paywall. So we'll make a, we'll go out and we'll film. Let's call. I went and filmed the new Lexus RCF, and I'll do a four minute free video which we'll still have ad revenue from, and then we'll have a 15 or 20 minute premium video, which costs $4 a month to access that. Just, you know, it, it, it is working. We have enough money to continue, although it hurts a little bit to go from getting two or three million views a video to 20,000, even though those people are, have paid for it. What, another side effect was, in the two weeks following the announcement of this, Drive lost four hundred thousand subscribers. Not only do they not want to pay, they hit unsubscribe for the free stuff too. They, it was like we're like, okay, we're not going to film cars anymore. Instead, we're only going to film kicking babies down the road. They were like so furious at the audacity of us to charge for content. It's the internet. It's free. I don't care. Eh, eh. And by the way, we don't want to watch ads either. They're five. You know. So, so generating revenue in the digital space is really really hard which is why uh, one of those channels has moved to the paid subscription mine I, I'm committed to not doing that so I have the 20 hoses in a barrel model um, so the short the, the answer is it's rough it's rough out there um, and so if you have to you know
1: where was I going with this what was the question? No, I think that, that is the question is how does what is premium? So, what is freemium? So what
3: I just told you guys is the nightmare that we live in in terms of how do you actually make any money. Mu- and and the, the audience is going, well you get to drive a new car every week. Why should we, why should you earn a living?
1: Wh- what? And by the way, what uh, you
3: guys just heard is... The really, I, so, I can't sleep and eat in the Audi press car I'm driving. Like, I'm sorry. Like,
1: and, and for insight, I own a PR agency that represents 20 of the top automotive aftermarket brands in the country. And I didn't fully understand that model until I heard Matt talk about it on Jeff's podcast when I was driving up to Monterey. Even industry
3: people, when they hear that, are like, are you
1: kidding? It's very unusual because of those contracts to hear someone clearly describe how that model with YouTube works and how you actually generate revenue.
3: It doesn't work. It's a terrible, terrible terrible business model. If I knew how bad it would be in 2007 – I would not have ever started this. And I only continue it because I love the cars so much and because when people come up to me and say how much they enjoy my work, they're the nicest people in the world, and that's great. The money is garbage. And you have to work so hard to make garbage. It's crazy. I work 120 hours a week. I mean, if I cleared 60 grand last year after all this bullshit, you know.
1: So, Jeff, I mean, I'll throw it to you because you're doing... Uh, you know, you've got a couple different irons in the yeah. fire. Yeah, well, I mean,
12: uh, the Hooniverse YouTube channel, we only really started focusing on it this year, and it's, it's much smaller than than Matt's two channels. Um, <clears throat> so for us to generate any of the YouTube ad revenue from the the, the way he ma- mentioned, uh, our, our numbers are even smaller. Um, but we're also not big enough that I can go out and ask for subscriptions. Um, but I'm fascinated by that model obviously I want to see it succeed one just because they're my friends but two it, it, it could make a, a big case for why you should be paying for stuff on the internet you know we work hard to produce these videos um, but I've done something a little bit different. Um, I just uh, signed up a sponsor for some of my videos so i shoot I shoot a, another video to run before my video to in this case it's Dollar Shave club so I'm trying to get you to buy razors basically before you get into the car stuff. So pre roll. Yeah. It's like a burn in exactly. Um and initially some people are gonna say, Well, why I do I don't wanna watch, you know, a minute of that before I watch an eight minute car video. Um but the the blowback hasn't been as bad because I can say, Well, we could do subscription people are like, Oh no, 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 we don't you know we don't wanna do that. You we could do what with, Drive's with doing. drive with plus. <laughs> um but, and then and then because it's me doing the ad, it feels a little bit more personal than me just sticking uh, you know, Dollar Shave Club's ad up there. So th- there are ways to do it, but still. And you can't, and you can't
3: use Adblock. Right. It's baked into the video, yes. you can't use Adblock.
12: But and the, the part that bums me out is when I went to them with the number, they immediately said yes, and I was like, shit.
8: <laughs> <laughs> like,
12: so I obviously asked for way too little amount. But for our small channel, it helps us offset some of the costs. But I'm a one man show, and he has four guys. Uh, so it's, it's, it's hard to churn these out when you're making so little money, like Matt said.
1: So um, I'll hand this over to Matt DeAndrea because Matt, you work with Corolla who is kind of the one guy in all of podcasting who's really, I mean, Corolla is in the Guinness Book of World Records, World's largest podcast, and he seems to have this kind of seemingly endless number of podcasts under his umbrella. H- how does it work over there, and how, how have you guys, I mean, you've been doing CarCast for a long time. Yeah. How does that
2: whole program work? Well. I mean, like Matt Farrow said, Adam's got his hands in a dozen things, and that's how he makes a living. Of all the podcasts that we do over there, CarCast doesn't necessarily make any money. It, it doesn't make any money. It doesn't really make any money. Um, but I can tell you just on the topic of trying to turn this into a business, one of the things that I've been pushing is, is we've been taking our podcast show, which is very difficult to sell advertising on and be profitable, and I've been turning that into a live show. And as a live show, we get hired for corporate events and things like that. Each one of those events, the dollars are pretty good. We just need to book a lot more of those events. But I'm just trying to take a page out of the entertainment industry and seeing what, what somebody like Adam does. Or Adam doesn't really do a lot of stand-up comedy shows anymore, just live podcast shows. So I just started taking CarCast, doing live podcast shows, corporate events, and being able to charge a premium for that. We just got to find more venues that'll do it. It's very difficult to sell out a couple hundred seats at at a live podcast show, but it's just another avenue for how we're trying to explore to make money in automotive.
1: So, Mark, you're a, an EIC at you know one of the biggest magazines in your in your market, and what's Bonnier, your, your parent company? What what is what's do you guys have a paywall? What's the how do you guys handle it?
9: We don't have a paywall. We um have worked real hard on SEO and we've become the biggest uh, motorcycle w- website so the basic anchor for the business is the brand, the brand reputation and the long history like we have a very consistent uh, testing program we've been using the same guy who's really talented Don they. so our, all our numbers and all that stuff are historically accurate and so forth so you have this and then you just have the brand strength, good riders and um, so is it that's ad revenue based? Still? Yeah, definitely. So the, um, for video, you'll see the pattern for video. We have a great guy who's a great editor and will produce feature length type videos that we put into our own player. So you have a player within the website and you sell pre-roll against that or you use Google Ad Choices or whatever. And that's, uh, that's where we would first publish the video. And once we've squeezed the life out of it there, unless it's something that's really trucking, um, we squeeze life out of it there, and then we, you know, we have a limited, uh, extremely limited, as he, he said, uh, income from YouTube on video. But for us, it's really uh, doing well in search, and like I said, feature link stuff, and then fill in the cracks. So it's more
1: get the traffic, and then monetize it by selling ads against. Yeah, it.
9: social platforms. You know, like trying to get. I mean, we have our. F- inbounds from Facebook are probably uh, are usually our second largest um, inbound traffic source behind Google.
1: That's a, a good transition. AJ, you work for or, or run kind of the newest platform uh, represent on the stage and I know there's a huge social component. What are you doing to kind of figure out how to get audience and monetize all this?
11: Uh, well, luckily we're a museum so the charitable donations of you guys are uh, what helps monetize this but it, uh, one thing I think was the common theme here was everyone's making their money some other way. And everybody's making their money. And I don't mean another job, but your, your ad revenue. You can go Google. You can go freemium. Uh, you can have your own video content platform. You can sell the ads yourself. You can go call Dollar Shave Club. Uh, or you can do live shows. Do that. You can make money at this. The big winner is Google. Google's making the money off all the content we're creating. Uh, So they're selling the ads. Where you're gonna stand out and where you're gonna shine is you gotta create good content. You gotta create good original content that not only is better than your competitors, but hopefully it's something they don't have. And you gotta find out what your audience likes and appeal to that. Uh, You know, I have certain cars I like, I have certain cars I don't like, but I'm gonna create more articles not based off my choices of what I like, by by what does well, what people respond to, what, what people uh, you know click on, like, share, go through the links. It has to be good, it has to be something somebody wants. And once you create the good content, and it's a philosophy I really agree on, it's something that's debated that a lot of people don't agree on, just send it out, put it out into the ether. Get eyeballs on it any way you can. I was a huge opponent to uh, your own video platform. I came from a company that was very anti YouTube, and I thought it was the dumbest thing in the world because I, and, and I'm not saying yours is, is the dumbest thing in the world, uh, but what I, I'm saying is I, I read something about Coca Cola. Coca Cola is one of the best branded companies in the world because their entire thing is however you want to drink soda, they will give it to you. If you want it in a can, a two liter bottle, if you want to order it at a restaurant, if you want to uh, just, if you want to go get it at a ball game. You will always get a Coke wherever you want to drink. And that's how you need to treat your content. But first, make your content the best it can be. And then, however, if somebody wants to read it in a magazine, if they want it to read it in their email every morning, if they want to read it on their iPad, uh, if they want to buy it in a newsstand, if they want to have it mailed to them, uh, or watch it, have someone show it to them on YouTube or tell it to them on a podcast. Just get it out there, get it on every platform possible, and... Luckily we're able to do this and you're going to see more websites that will have a podcast, that will have a video content because it's cheap. Cameras are cheap, microphones are cheap, everything's cheap, everything works. Just get it out there, get it in front of eyes. But before you do that, just make it as good and original as you can.
1: Great advice. Uh, We're getting a little on time so I'm going to ask one more question and I'm going to skew towards a little bit of controversy and then we'll open it up to the audience. you know, when, when Robert E. Peterson started Hot Rod and then Motor Trend uh, about 65 years ago, uh, the model was pretty straightforward. It was about a 50-50 ad-to-edit ratio in the magazines. And back then, it was an enthusiast magazine. He wasn't running the Wall Street Journal. And most of the editorial, if you look at those early issues of Hot Rod, was essentially marketing content for Edelbrock and Wyand and all these early speed parts companies. And And as, you know, those magazines progressed and competitors cropped up and... There became a a larger market for automotive content, um, a majority of those public newspapers started covering cars. uh, They took on more of the traditional ad versus edit kind of, there was a firewall there where, you know, there was not as much influence. And on the enthusiast side I think there's been a little bit more crossover between the ad department and the edit department on books like Car and Drive and Road and Track. There's always been trying to be more of a, you know, kind of a uh, you know, like I said, a firewall between those two departments. What's happened lately is, is Seth Godin, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, he's an author who writes a lot of business books, wrote a, a pretty seminal book about two years ago called All Marketers Are, and he and wrote Liars and crossed out and wrote Storytellers. And the premise of the book is essentially that over the next 30 years, brands that are going to continue to thrive and survive in, in the new post-recession economy are going to be the ones that have the ability to do a great job telling their own story directly to the consumer. And And he wrote that book a few years ago, and it's actually happening pretty quickly. So if you look at a lot of even what the OEMs are doing now where there used to be long lead events and short lead events and these really exotic press car events and motorcycle rollouts where they fly you to Mallorca and put you in a brand X Italian car and do all these really cool things and certain websites respect embargoes and certain websites don't respect embargoes and there's been this sort of blending now where you do have some traditional media outlets that still kind of really aren't pay to play and they write what they write and if they like the car they like it and if they don't they don't and some of those are big publications and some are small. Uh, And then we're starting to see more and more, especially on video channels, where there are content creators that are basically taking a check from the OEM and they just write essentially a big commercial. Um, I'm not saying that's good or bad. Uh, I think from the, the consumer who's looking for a minivan, they still need a legitimate comparison test between all the minivans. But on the higher end stuff, I'm, I'm not sure if that's necessarily a bad thing. If people want, they, that model wouldn't work if people didn't want to be entertained. If people weren't watching Ken Block doing all these crazy stuffs in his Ford vehicle, then they would stop paying for Ken Block to do those videos. So my, my question to all of you, and I'm just kind of curious whoever wants to start tackling this, is where does that kind of pay to play system and that kind of brand journalism system work within traditional automotive journalism?
7: Well, I want to uh, defend the honor of Car and Driver here because uh, in the 14 years that I've been a Car and Driver, I've never once, and I'm, handy, to have never once been told this is because they are an advertiser. Hello. We are doing this because they, they. I, I don't. I couldn't tell you who the advertisers are in that magazine other than the floor mat people. And the entire t- rack. Thank God, thank and God, and God thank for WeatherTech, and rack. thank God for them because they've paid our salaries. But we've never once written any uh, um, editorial content based on on an advertiser's. To, and, I, and, I, and I and I and I'm saying that for a reason, because it's a short game. What in what I what I believe is happening is that the media companies, the established media companies, are reestablishing themselves in the new format, in the new media outlets. Um, there's a reason, I mean, when I, you know, in 2004, you know, when, when they, we hired our first web guy, um, everybody said, oh, you know, you big media companies, you're gonna be gone, We're, this, this, everything's being democratized, uh, you, you'll just, you're old dinosaurs. Well, in 2004, we had about 23 people working at Car and Driver. We now have over 50. So if there's some demonstrable way of showing uh, how things have changed, how, at a, at a big old dinosaur media company, the fact we were bigger than we ever were than we could ever imagine to be when we were in 2004. So, uh, and what that means is we have the resources to run, uh, to hire video people, to hire copy editors for our website. We have a fact checker for our website. Um, and my firm belief and I have to believe this because I'm in this business is that the desire for quality vetted journalism will translate into the new medium Um, and it's already happening. Um, There's a lot of information out there, we all know that, but people are going to seek the sources where they know they can get good quality information and for any automotive media outlet to in the short term compromise their brand name by doing advertorial for revenue right now I think is is a very short game and ultimately doomed because when all of the technoc- when all the technology comes along that allows us to read car magazines on airplanes and on the can in the doctor's office when that happens and we're no longer reading print magazines we're reading some silicon sheet or whatever it is um, those media companies that have uh, maintained their integrity they will be reconstituted in this new format and I believe. And there'll be shakeups and there'll be new empires created. Matt Farrow, you know, might be the William Randolph Hearst of twenty twenty five. We don't know. But the I'll fact take is his castle. <laughs> but the fact is, is that uh, those companies that are really uh, that do make the transition, I think that they'll be as appealing to the consumers as they are before the transition.
3: The problem is that people don't click on ads. That's the problem that, that with internet the entire problem with the internet is that people don't click on ads and they're immediately trackable. You can sell an ad in Car and Driver, and the ad comes with the book. It's there. Whether you look at it or not doesn't really matter, because it's, it's there in the book unless you tear it out. It, so few... You, raise your hand if you've ever clicked on an ad on a website intentionally. I have. Okay, so that's like five <laughs> out of 120. It
0: was my own website. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 Every
3: Everybody time D'Andrea comes to my house, he pulls up his own website. Star, he starts clicking ads. Yeah.
2: I make 80 cents
3: every time I come over. Yeah. <laughs> so people don't click on ads. And so, so the, where the ad people have gone is, well, we're just going to sneak it in. We'll sneak it in. And those who need the money now will take it. And those who don't really care, those I, – I think everyone up here is smart enough to not take it. But there's a lot of people out there who will say, fuck it. Take the money.
1: Well, and I think, and I, I guess on a, a follow-up question is, you know, Aaron, I, I agree with everything you're saying, and I like reading your book because of that, but that's, there, there's an assertion in your comments that, by, that, that it's a black and white issue, that if you, if you take money, and I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, Ford writes me a check to give the Fiesta a really positive review. It, it can, it, it's, there's a, I think it's a more of a gray area. So what I wonder is, is not in the pages of Car and Driver is a pay-to-play, is it, you know, is it taking a press trip? or more so is it putting a piece of content up and, and i use the ken block example just because ken's a cool guy and and those videos are really entertaining but he wouldn't be able to produce them if he wasn't getting checks from monster and from ford and and if people want to watch that is that necessarily a bad thing or is it a completely is it purely apart from what we're talking about today
7: well ken blocks in the entertainment business and and to a certain extent we are too we're in the recreation and leisure business we're not really true journalists but but the fact is is that um well, sorry, I lost my train. I
6: just want I, 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 I think that if you're talking about Ken Block, I mean, you're talking more about sponsorship. I mean, there's sponsorship in racing. There has been sponsorship in racing ever since, you know, people stopped wanting to wreck their cars for free. Um, so, and it's really obvious, and nobody has any question about it. I think that, you know, if you're talking about, if one of our websites shares a Ken Block video is that... Uh, putting in an ad for free. Well, I mean, if we write about a race car that's sponsored by some, you know, Target or something, are we advertising Target? Well, yes, but that's the whole point. That's why they sponsor racing is so that we will write about their race car and it will be in the magazine. Um, I think that there is a possibility now, um, you know, having been on the marketing side, um, you know, I'm sure it's great when you are on the marketing side, there is a possibility people are so hungry for content that it's sort of like pre-written or, you know, or like, you know, if there is pressure from an advertiser, but uh, I mean, I know on, you know, on my part at Hot Rod that I've never had pressure from my editor for anything. I mean, we've talked about stuff before. I, you know, I went to uh, Barrett Jackson to cover the Don Prudhomme uh, auction, and I came back thinking that both Prudhomme and Craig Jackson were going to leave horses' heads in my beds after the story, but you know, my editor didn't make me change anything, and nobody nobody got mad at me because. Uh, well, it's also,
10: it's not overt pressure either. It's it's when you are in this industry and you are constantly talking to people at automakers, um, you know, product reps, and or you're you know reporting on what they're doing, and you're getting to know the engineers, and you're getting to know people whose entire lives are based on building a product, and you get to know them, and there's a there's a relationship there, and then. It is your job to then go and either say it is good or bad or a gray area. That just sort of on an emotional level, that gets tricky sometimes. I I you know, and it's been nice to follow in Dan Neil's footsteps because he was very honest and if a car sucked, he was gonna say a car sucked. And I think there's an expectation, at least with our outlet at the LA Times, that we're gonna sort of call something like it is. Um but it does. It gets difficult on just sort of a relationship level because um, on the one hand, these are people we work with very regularly, and then your your obligation to your readers is to then go and say, here's what this product of what this this person has spent you know 18 months working on and here's why it's not that good. Um, that gets tricky, you know, and I think we all have to we all balance I, it every day.
7: I, I wanted to say what, what I was gonna say originally, which is that our readers don't really care who pays for the press strip. They really don't. They want us to bring back the information. And they want us to run it through our filter of experience and knowledge and a lot of cynicism. You know. And that's what they... They don't really care who pays for it. I mean, just tell me about the car. Tell me what I need to know.
1: And I, I brought that question of not because I think there's something broken in the system, but to get all this kind of out and on record. Because I think as someone who puts together press trips, a subject that's not covered a lot is journalists don't get paid a lot of money. And they're kind of spread out all over the country. And if you have... 10 cars in a press fleet and you want to do a new vehicle rollout in many cases it's a lot easier to get everyone together and bring them to the cars than it is to distribute 10 cars across 50 states and you can't ask them to fly on their own dime especially if they're a freelancer or they have a publication on a small budget so yeah it gets a little out of control sometimes because there is some one-upmanship in the marketing departments but it's also a case of practicality well we're
9: competing to we are competing with any savvy OE brand, any savvy manufacturer, any savvy gear maker. I sat in a room with the marketing guy for a gear company and he had a YouTube video that had like 22 million views and I said how much did you spend on that and he's like oh it's awesome it was so cheap and I'm like what do you mean by cheap and he said forty grand for one video that was about four minutes long ten thousand bucks a minute. Um, I, I pay less than that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's, the real, that's been the real crux for us because if you want to get your message out there, like, you know, OE manufacturers, we've all had the discussion, like we've overproduced videos, like we've done these really slick, beautiful videos on a superbike test and I spent thousands of dollars to do that whole production and it might in, you know, three months get 7,000 views and then I call it the dumpster video. I sent my road test editor and my camera guy out and basically in the parking lot of the building with a new, uh, a new Ninja 300, pretty interesting motorcycle. We shot a video in like 45 minutes. They did car a bike around the strawberry field and we came back and he just said, it's this bike, it's this, and that thing just shot off the charts like it was, it was crazy. Oh, same with OEs. Overproduced stuff, they, people are less inclined. There's been a shift in, the, in what people want from a video and if it's too slick, they don't necessarily believe it, and OES have downgraded some of that stuff. You'll see, you'll see all that. And then, as far as advertorial or um, you know these sponsored messages, that kind of thing. I mean, that that's really widespread. Huffington Post does a ton of it. Wired does it. They say it's you know sponsored here and there. My marketing department has done that, and I believe that that's the short game, as it was stated. That's the short game. They have produced videos that have nothing to do with who we are. They label them, and then they put them in editorial space. And you know, as a as a journalist, like I have a hard time. And there've been, you know, I mean, this is a huge debate. But you're really the competition and the ways to make money. You are, I think, competing with OES, and that's that's hard because they're not making their money on content. They're not making their money on content.
1: Excellent. Uh, I'm gonna open up to questions from the audience. Anyone?
3: I'm wondering if uh, the guys who are strictly uh, internet-based, if, uh, uh, let me back up a second. I'm a journalist, photographer, ad sales. Uh, I've been making my ad, my uh, my living since 99 uh, in ad sales in journalism and photography. Um, the display ad seems to be forgotten by some of you guys. Is that a restriction from YouTube or is it,
0: do I, I mean, all the websites I work with are WordPress-based, and so the ad revenue that comes in pays me well.
3: You want to come work for me? The ad revenue that comes off my WordPress site is garbage. I mean, I'm serious. It's, it's really, it's nothing. It's, it's, I, if, if you know a strategy, I'm, I'm open to it. We uh,
12: we were running Google ads on Hooniverse for a while, and out of nowhere, they decided to uh, cancel us. We tried to appeal it. They said, no, we... They let us appeal it and then they said their immediate decision was no and they never gave us a reason why. So us finding ads as a WordPress blog has been difficult. Doing a combination of, of these small networks um, with some other websites out there. It's, it's, it's The thing that I, I hate about being uh, somewhat of a one man show at Hooniverse is that I have to be biz dev, editorial, uh, HR, all this stuff, and I'm not good at the business side of it. So that, that part has been tough, being a uh, small But you're very separate.
10: cleanly
11: shaved, yeah. though.
12: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it, I, I
11: think agree it works you. best on an individual basis. And as long as the advertiser is something you like and you can work with, I don't, I don't really see anything wrong with it. And there's an art form in coming up with a creative solution to someone wanting to give you money and you delivering that as a piece of content. If you look behind us, we have a beautiful sports coupe exhibit The Jaguar wrote a check for. It is sponsored by Jaguar, and there's a brand new Jaguar in there. And you know, it's everyone's opinion. There's nothing, in my opinion, nothing wrong with that because the Jaguar in there is a great sports coupe. And we were able to turn that into a great piece of content for a consumer.
3: But you're uh, not but reviewing the Jaguar F-Type, uh, are you? Uh, no, if but you're we're not, not
11: reviewing the car, who cares? We're, we're not reviewing it, uh, and so that works for us. So you've got
1: to figure out what works best for yourself. There's another question. Okay. Thank you, AJ. By the way, the video in the sports SportsCoop exhibit is fantastic.
5: <laughs> How you guys doing? I have a question for uh, the person that works for the LA Times. Do you have any, uh, any advantage to working for a publishing company versus a magazine company in a sense or a media group? Do you see that? Because a lot of the print magazines, they've gone out of business and we've lost, I can just count out probably three this past year that have gone under you know, for Source Interleague. So I want to hear about how LA Times is successful. I also want to hear a little bit about Car and Driver because I like you guys. I like how you said you were very honest about your car opinions and stuff. And I know a lot of these magazines that went under, they weren't. But I also know they are under a lot of pressure from you know, their, their parent company. So could you guys talk about that a little bit?
10: Um, yeah, I think one advantage we've had is, you know, when I sit down and write an article for the LA Times, it's generally going to end up in another 12 newspapers and then hit syndication um, because sort of Tribune, we're Chicago Tribune, Orlando Sentinel, Hartford Current, Baltimore Sun. Um, so that's an advantage. Um, we, if you've sort of watched what Tribune has done over the past decade, we've sort of consolidated so that we used to have LA Times had their own Washington Bureau and the Tri- Chicago Tribune had their own Washington Bureau. Now we just have a Tribune Washington Bureau. And we've sort of consolidated a lot of the car stuff here. We still have guys in Chicago who are doing some car stuff. But I think, you know, we're sort of playing to our strengths as an overall media company. Um, we're just fortunate to be, you know, like I was saying earlier, in a hotbed of car culture. Um, so, I, you know, I think we're, we're getting to a point where – and then that gives us an advantage because automakers, uh, you know, respect us. They, we are, we're big enough that, you know, we can uh, – and like I said, following Dan Neil's has helped. We can sort of – still be an established, a, a trusted place to go uh, for
7: readers, and people know that. Uh, you have to stop thinking of Car and Driver as a magazine. It's really a brand, and uh, the brand appears in several outlets. It's, it's a website. We have a YouTube channel, although we've kind of stopped spending money on it. Um, and and Eddie, my boss, Eddie Alterman, he's a brand manager because it, it's really kind of, um, you know, what, is, what does Car and Driver mean? And then, how does that translate into the various um, outlets that we have? And what Car and Driver means is something we put right on the cover. It's independence, irreverence, and, um, and uh, was it incompetence, intelligence? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, There's a third eye. I didn't get much sleep last night. Sorry. but I, and, and you know, I talked about playing the long game and that's it. I mean, our, our readers are expecting us to be honest to them. We work for them. and. Uh, there 's nothing a car company can really threaten us with, because if they want to pull advertising it 's okay we 're going to make a better case to our readers as to why we need to be truthful on that car they don 't want to invite us on another three day trip to southern Spain where I have to take four planes and i don 't sleep for three i 'm okay with that <laughs> they can 't threaten us you know there 's nothing that they can say to us or get mad at us or anything and i 've had people you know i've had people come down from car companies to yell at us about a review, but th- they can 't do anything to us um, that we can't shrug off because, ultimately, we work for the readers, and I, we want to, you know, say what we think. I mean, and that's what they're paying for. So, uh, you know, I know that kind of sounds like the the ba- the booklet, you know, th- to answer, but but I think that that's how going forward with all the the turmoil in this industry, that's how we've we've managed to stay on top. Because you know, I've had this discussion with my colleagues at Motor Trend. You know, your magazine's price the same, you sell about the same number of copies, uh, although we were slightly ahead. Um, you know, you guys cover the same cars that Double we breath. do. Uh, how come we're number one, you know, we, and we've been number one for a while. And they go, That's, well, your distribution model and you give away more today. And, you know, but we all get the marketing numbers and uh, they don't, you know, we don't spend any more on uh, subsidized subscriptions than they do. Actually, we spend less. So, and what it really comes down to is the writing and the photography, like what I said, what we sell. And um, so it's, it's the quality.
1: Excellent. So we're going to do one more question, and then the Peterson needs this space. So what we're going to do after our next question is we've set up some high-top round tables out there so we can do a little networking for any of you who want to ask more questions. And some of the journalists actually brought uh, press cars and a couple of really interesting personal cars right outside the doors out there, kind of on top of the roof, so you can check those out as well. Um, so we have one more question.
13: Hi, um, I guess the issue gets back to the idea of journalism and the role of the journalist, which to me seems to be undervalued, or at least historically was somewhat undervalued, so I want to put the question, which actually dovetails into what was just talked about. Um, before, like the, the American car companies would present cars and the, the journalists would review them and they really would go gloss over so many of the problems that existed in these cars. And so year after year, the, the American car companies kept making the cars. and. Then the consumer would buy the product, and go, well, why didn't you mention this, or why didn't you mention this? And we'd learn about these things. And and there is, I think, an issue with all due respect to Car and Driver, where if you're invited to Nice or France for a, a review and you do a bad review, and then Mercedes, when they maybe rolls out an SL sixty five, you're no, not invited to that event. I think there there are some some questions that can come out of that, and. And the flip side of that is, so how do you strike a balance between doing the reviews that are actually critical, that point out the problems with the car, when there's a new rollout of a Camaro that the plastic door panels are, say, cheaper maybe than a Coca-Cola bottle and they're not really talked about. Um, and, and on the flip side, I'd say look at what like, people like Jeremy Clarkson does, who will be very specific and point out, look, this is what's rubbish in this car, and then oftentimes you'll hear it comes back, the, the manufacturer changes something and wants them to review again. So how do you strike the balance between being really a journalist and critical, and you talk about good content and still staying on their side where they, they want to send you cars back? And at the end of the day, it would seem to me that that's the person, the consumer, the buyer of the media, would want to listen to the most.
7: Well, most. the question proceeds from a false premise, which is that I'm on their side. I, I don't care who um, makes a better car. My, my readers want better cars. And so I, I don't care if it's Honda, Mercedes, Hyundai, some car company that hasn't been founded yet. I, my reader, I actually have my readers. Our readers want the cars to be better. So by criticizing the cars that we get, we are working on their behalf. We are trying to tell the car companies, this is something that needs to be fixed because you're not doing it right. And uh, the wiser car companies listen to us. And the ones that get mad, yeah, they get mad. But I, you know, uh, I, in, Fourteen years a Car and Driver. I have never been once told that we didn't get invited on this thing because we reviewed their car badly, and we've re- we've taken down a number of cars. Um, it's interesting. Well, you, you sorry. can tell, you, yeah, I, I,
10: without naming names. There are definitely automakers who take criticism harder than others, and I would say generally. Th- Well, generally, they're the car makers who are not making as good cars, and I think that's telling. Um, We have it a little easier in that we're not, we can't take any trips. Um, We, a a newspaper's ethics policy, we can't do that. We're, going back to what I was saying earlier, we're big enough that once the cars come to the LA press fleet, we can get one, but, you know, that sort of gives us this kind of built-in, we're sort of insulated that we're not taking anything, so if we hate your product and we say that, then no one's feelings are hurt. Well, no, you know, we're not cutting off sort of what's, uh, you know, supporting us, because it's not supporting us. Um, one thing about Jeremy Clarkson is I, th- he <laughs> that's much more entertainment um, than, I think, pure journalism. Um, and the production values are great, and they spend a lot of money, and it's absolutely amazing to watch. It's uh, a little different than, I think, what is expected of us. And another thing, for just for me, I, I would love to sit down and give you 3,000 words on a car and give every little nuance of what I like and what I don't like. I've got 1,000 words, uh, and that's because that's what's going to fit in the newspaper. Philosophically, I could go longer online. That's for the editors to decide, and we don't do that. But you have to sort of condense everything down to, okay, if someone is interested in buying this car, I have have to pick out what I can tell you is good or bad in 1,000 words. And the door panel, sure, that may be relevant to to some readers, but if my editor is sitting there and saying, "Mm, overall, we can't fit this in, you know, that, that's just from us. And, and I know, you know, online has an advantage of they can go longer and, and long-form journalism, well, too. On, yes. the, and
12: on the video side, too, if we're there to review a car, we have to work so quickly to get our shots. We're, we're trying to figure out what to say about the car as we're just driving it for the first time, and we might have two hours on a racetrack to do that. So we might not even notice something like that the glove box is a little, is a little loose because we're, we're trying to get our thoughts out and we're trying to do our stuff. Now, if we get that car months down the road, and we have it for a week, and then we can do it in a written format, we'll we'll definitely point something like that out. But there's occasions in the video space where we just, we're trying to do as much as we can with the car in a very limited time.
8: There's one uh, philosophy that um, I think, you know, actually Dave's uh, predecessor, Dan Neal says, that there are no uh, bad cars anymore. Any car is good because they'll get you from point A to point B, and they won't blow up on the way there. So um, when you review a car, you know, you have to think either what will make you want to buy this car, or at the very least, if you don't like this car, it'll still do the job it's intended to. So sometimes that can devolve into nitpicking, like oh, you know, the, the door hinge on the center console is really kind of squeaky. Well, actually, that's a pretty big problem, so yeah. that's a bad example. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so there's, but um, at the end, ultimately, no, no matter who flies you out to Hawaii, who flies you out to Spain to drive something, and you know, whatever PR guy buys you, like like a bottle of scotch, the product still stands on its own. And there's not a single amount of scotch in the world that'll make a like a terrible car good. That's
7: the old saying, we can't be bought, but we never want them to stop trying, right?
4: That is true. As Blake Blake brought up, you know, they're really, if you look at the lowest priced Hyundai Accent, or the lowest priced Nissan Versa Note S, you know, they're still, compared to what a small car, entry-level car was 20 years ago, they're rather amazing, and, and, my and so. My is uh, taking
6: offense yeah, to that. Yeah, well,
4: <laughs> but it's it, it, and uh, getting back to what David said, it's like you know, time-wise. I mean, I've got about two minutes on the air. If I spend, and, and I will occasionally, when the Cadillac ATS came out, I, about twenty seconds of my story was, look how small the rear seat is. And there was no backseat legroom in that car. And it was getting all these favorable reviews and it's a nice car, but I had an intern, not even me, I'm six foot six. There's no way I'm getting back there. Yeah. <laughs> but I had an intern, a young lady, and she was maybe five foot eight, and we had a shot of her trying to get into the backseat of the car. And and that's just kind of the rare thing that really is blatant that, that pops up that she goes, Oh my gosh, you know who would buy this car unless you never are going to put people in the rear seat, Matt, notwithstanding. But, you know, there, those things just don't come up very often. And, and I think back when I first started reading car magazines, boy, you know, car and driver particularly would be merciless on a, like a Camaro with, well, the first bump we hit, the sun visor fell down and, and you know, the gear, gear knob came off in our hands and we were driving through Phoenix and the air conditioning went out. I mean, that was routine, even with these sort of massaged press cars that they went over with a fine-tooth comb. So I just don't think there's a lot of really awful cars up uh, there anymore.
7: There's weaknesses in design. I mean the fact is you get 400 people together to design a new car and that's roughly the size of the engineering development team for a new product. And those 400 people, given the exact same set of circumstances and tasks as the other 2400 people that are working on cars, they're going to come to different decisions, and that's where our, that's, what, that's what we do. And we have to figure it out in a week what might take a buyer six months to figure out. But the fact is, is that most of us, when we go to buy a new car, we sign a piece of paper, we pay, make payments for four or five or six years. I mean, this is a huge expense. And so our job is to find out what's wrong with that product in a week, which that poor person who's already bought the car might not, might not find out for six months. And, you know, and, and the readers frequently disagree with us. And, and speaking of back seats, I mean, we got a lot of letters about the Maserati Ghibli test because uh, one of the things we, we criticized then was the back seat of the Ghibli. And people said, you're criticizing a Maserati back seat. I mean, come on, you know, this is an Italian supercar. This is, you know, that's ridiculous. You know, that's like criticizing the tire tracks of a Ferrari. You know, so... And we said, well, yeah, but the fact is, is that somebody's going to buy this car, and they're going to go to pick up people to go to dinner, and they're going to have to apologize for the terrible back seat in their ninety thousand dollar car, and uh, you know, so it, we it, we owe it to the readers to tell tell them this stuff. When I started in this business in
9: 1993, everyone in this business said the same thing that I just heard, which is there were no bad bikes, no bad cars, like the 1993 GS6R 750 was a pretty good bike, FZR750. The point is, is it keeps progressing. Like we have BMW S1000RRs with electronic suspension, like solving problems that you didn't necessarily think were coming. When I talked to the suspension guy at BMW, I'm like, well, what about variable ride height? And what about all these things that you could control the center of gravity of the motorcycle? And he just smiles and says, well, there has to be stuff left for engineers to work on, right? So no bad cars, no bad bikes. Yeah, they're all adequate adequate is move forward excellent is now kind of mediocre but it's always progressing and if you have a good company and you have a good publisher like we have a good publisher and if we write something negative about a product and they come back and say this is this and this is that he's just going to come to me and say well were you right and I'm saying we're a hundred percent right and he says fine and as far as pulling ads you know it's like oh well such and so is going to pull that ad I mean our revenue is now spread I mean you know, they really always used to haul the goods for the magazine, and even then it was still a true product. But now it's all s- spread around so much that for them to pull a program, if Kawasaki pulled the program, it's like, I don't care. I mean, I wouldn't care anyway, but from a business perspective, they don't, they don't hold enough sway. Like, you, you work for the reader. The reader pays you money. Like, that person subscribing to Cycle World is committing to the product, and so your commitment is to them. And it's the same on the website.
1: That's I think a really good note to kind of wrap things up on, Mark. Um, the Peterson needs this space. Uh, we're going to wrap this up here. We're going to move to directly in front of the World's Greatest Sports Coupes exhibit to do a little networking. We can also go to outside to check out some of the cars. But first, could everyone please give a round of applause to this panel? <laughs> I just want to thank you all for coming out. I know Saturday morning on a Saturday is kind of tough and we appreciate it.